Hello and welcome to this week's episode of The Giant Pod with me, your host, Andy Rintmore. And my lord, we have a big bumper jumbo giant edition of The Giant Pod for you today. You might notice the runtime on it is slightly longer than what you're used to here. We are going down a rabbit hole with our guest this week. His name is Cole Henley. He is telling us the story of his great-grandfather, Albert Schreiner, who is a prolific um, East German political figure who's been largely unreported or underreported throughout history. He pops up throughout the early 20th century during World War One, a Spanish Civil War. I believe this possibly some World War Two. Well, there's definitely some World War Two stuff. Um, there's a meeting with Lenin at some point. Oh, it's unbelievable. The story is unreal. This is the only place where Albert Schreiner's entire history is collected right now right here on this podcast could be a netflix documentary it could be a hbo special uh it's just absolutely insane it's very dense politically it's very dense socially it's very dense historically it really is a super deep dive big props to cole for being so 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 erudite uh with with his um knowledge and so well researched before coming onto this pod. And thank you, Cole, again for the homebrew. Um, Harry had to cut quite a bit of me out towards the end of the um, the pod because I was sort of slurring my questions. Apparently, uh, yes. Yeah, so here it is. This is a big deep dive. This is a big giant pod for you, Cole Henley, telling the story of Albert Schreiner. This is so epic. I really hope you enjoy it. Here it is. saying can we we can we buy some to take away and the landlady just like filled up like an old lemonade two liter bottle and we paid her like 350 for it showing it's that old school it's all a petrol canister right it's all like that yeah and it was like thanks for coming joey like and we were on on the other story (laughs) we were on on our way with this bottle just sharing it and i woke up underneath a swing in norton philip there's a there's a there's a blackout between the with her sister with a torch in we were both on the floor passed out with a torch in her face like found you like (laughs) (laughs) told you (laughs) so yeah so i I wonder if this is a half it yeah no it's not gonna be that strong that's nice oh you're getting getting hints of uh i'm getting that ipa feel (laughs) hoppy i can't remember what's hops in it so we should probably get on to, uh, that is very nice actually, we should probably get on to why you've been invited on this podcast. Um, you have a great grandfather who's a bit of a, a legendary figure in German slash Russian uh, left-wing politics, I would say. Yeah, like, like I, what I find interesting is he's not widely talked about. Right. He does appear in all the right places uh-huh. at the right time, or the wrong places, or the right or the wrong, you know. Right. So where he's popping up in the history books, you find... Well, if you look at big events in German history from, say, 1918 through to like the, the, the Second World War, he's yeah. there at the thereabouts with some of the major figures in left-wing politics, but never is really mentioned. So I don't, yeah. know, like, I don't know if he's really canny and knows to sort of keep his head down or whether he's been written out of history because the communist movement... Which, because he was a communist, yeah. so the communist movement in both Germany and 
Russia, not just talking about this period, I'm talking about right through until, the, you know, 1989, 1990, were very controlling about the histories they wrote and the stories they told and who was mentioned and who was omitted from histories. Right. I don't know if that's a part of it. But, yeah, he's, it's, it's, he's a very interesting character that I knew of growing up. I, yeah. I was aware of, about him. My, my, a bit of context, my grandmother was German. Yeah. She came to England in 1935 as a refugee because they'd left Germany when the Nazis got into power in 1933. So they went to Paris, and I think that... I think basically as a child she got free education until a certain age and she was 15 and then they said that, well, that basically her free education stopped. They knew they couldn't afford to educate her so they, they managed to arrange through the Red Cross for her to come to England right. as a refugee and then she stayed here for the rest of her life. That's amazing. So you've been tracing your great-grandfather, haven't you? But yes. be- before I guess before we, we go right down that big rabbit hole, we should probably... We should probably get a little bit of backstory on you and what what you do and 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 how and and your your life leading up to this point, I guess, because sure. I think that you're probably using you're using skills that you've learned along the way, haven't you, to build this story? Partly, yeah. So I've always been into history, and I've always been kind of the family genealogist. Um, right. I did. I went to university to study archaeology and became an archaeologist for. A number of well, not that many years. And I studied a PhD in Cardiff, and then after after completing that, struggling to get work or at least well paid work with a young family, moved into what I do now, which is web development, making websites. But I suppose I've always been fascinated by history and the past. Yeah, and I think I've always be, that's always been something that family members have tapped me up on um, to help out with. I mean, and the, the, the genesis of this project has been my uncle dying in 2017, I think it was. So my uncle, I was very close to, lived in London. He was very close to my great-grandfather growing up. And I went to visit him. He'd been ill. He had cancer. Right. And I'd been meaning to see him for a long time and never quite got round to seeing him. But at the time, I was teaching at the University of Greenwich. So I was teaching web design there. So... I was like, right, I'm coming into London. Can I come and stay with you the night before? Mm. Before I go teaching, we can catch up, chew the fat, see how you are, because I know he'd been very unwell. Right. And that evening, it turned out some friends of the family were there. We got chatting. One of the friends of the family was German, and he started talking about, we need to go to Germany to do this project. And what transpired was that when when my great-grandfather was on his deathbed in Berlin in 1979... He, he was flown over, my uncle was flown over to see him on his deathbed and he was basically asked to write his history because, because he lived in the communist East Germany, he was, he was worried that his story wouldn't be told right. and, or that if it was told, it would be politicised. I see, yeah. So this was, in 1979, the, 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 the too long don't read, in 1979, my uncle was charged with writing the biography of my great-grandfather. If we jump forward to 2017, he never got around to it. And it's a long time to put that off, isn't it? Well, I think it was on the back burner. I think he led a very, my uncle was a big character, led a very busy life. Right. And also, partly, he idolised him. And I think he was worried about 
potentially uh, finding out something he wouldn't skeletons in the closet and exactly. when they say never meet your heroes don't they and I guess to a degree that would be meeting your that'd be really yeah and I think you know he had he definitely had him on a pedestal like it's a bit of a tangent but I've got two boys yeah boys are hard work you know yeah. and they I read a book about raising boys called raising boys <laughs> and funnily enough and but the one thing there's lots of psycho babble but one of the one thing that stuck in my mind from that book was that when a child or when a boy is a toddler a, ch- a baby and a toddler their mum is their world they look up to their mother that is their frame of reference that's the sort of you know the the star that guides them that they look up to and follow right when they get to i suppose sort of post toddler when they get to school age they they look to their father they start to look for like you know shaping themselves and realizing that you know they're not just a person that they are a gender or a sex or whatever mm. and this is this is quite generalized but you know it's it, it sort of for a lot of people that rings quite true and it definitely stuck with me so yeah once they once they reach certain age they start looking to their father for guidance and start mimicking their father and things and then what happens when they become a teenager they they start to feel that they need to be independent of their family group so they seek an outside male figure for guidance and that really stuck with me one because for me that was my grandfather right so my mum uncle's father but I also recognised that my uncle, for my uncle, it was his grandfather, my great-grandfather. Right. So I saw a lot of connections there. And to go back to your point, I think what, because a lot of what the archives were, a lot of the German archives were, you know, they're Stasi archives. Right. So they're in, Which is, just assume that I don't know. Oh, no, sorry. Yeah. yeah. So the Stasi were the East German secret police. Right. So East Germany was a communist state from 1950-something, I can't remember what, to 1989. Right very controlled society, a sort of an arm of Russia, Russia in the West. I heard someone describe it as sort of quite a sort of, not as militant as Russia, right? but very str- controlled. And, you know, so I don't know if you've seen films like The Lives of Others and Goodbye Lenin, where, you know, on the one hand, it was a very socialist country. There, were no, there was no unemployment. There were no, no one went hungry. But the, the flip side of that is that the state provided shit food. You know, right. there were queues around the blocks whenever a shipment of bananas came in or whatever. Yeah. Um, the, you know, like my, oh, my great uncle, I suppose, he was a state-paid potter. Right. So he was an artist, and he got paid by the state to be an artist. So, you know, from one sense, that's a really idealistic thing. But on the other hand, it was a very cloak-and-dagger society. They had the, the media and everything controlled the way people lived. The Stasi were the sort of the front troops of that and controlling how everyone did, lived and observing people that were seen as corrupted or mal-influenced or what have you. Yeah. And they kept files on everyone. That's why I mentioned them, because they had files on every single citizen in the country and citizens outside the country, because my, a lot of my family were going over to East Germany a lot. Right. I went there in 86 before the war came down. And as a kid, that's really exciting. It's a new country. It's very different. But you only have to sort of peel back a few layers and realise things weren't quite right. Right. And not quite... You know, we were followed everywhere by a friend of the family. It's a lot of effort, isn't it? Yeah. For the, for the state to yeah, go to. Yeah, I think so. And I think it was a sort of... It was definitely... I think East Germany was a very identityless place because it was half German and half Russian. 
Yeah. And and it was very much in the dependency of Russia for its economy and and its ideas. And right. so it was kind of, you know, running on fumes for a long time. And that's usually when people, and we'll come on to that in the history, you know, when when there is economic and social struggle, that's when the sort of the baddies get a foothold, you know, the bad ideas right. start to swell. My area of interest is primarily his life yeah. in the time leading up to and immediately following World War Two. Yeah. There are there is a book there I'll yeah. show you, which is great for podcasts. <laughs> um, <laughs> which, uh, someone has written a biography of him, but it mostly focuses on his life when he returned to East Germany. He was a quite right. famous historian I see. in East Germany. So your uncle pedestaled him and he lived in East Germany, right? Oh no, you were no, he you lived were in London. He so lived my, in London. Yeah. So my uncle lived in London for years. He was in theatre. He was this crazy guy that ran around Europe with theatre and just was he had he had, he had he was diagnosed as a teenager with chronic rheumatoid arthritis. Right. So he spent his whole life in crippling pain, which he solved through alcohol. Right. And like he would have a, a glass of wine for breakfast and and he was a character you know and he had good days and bad days like like all people but particularly yeah. people that have a slight alcohol dependency but he was i mean i loved him and he was just a big character and but anyway i went to see him in london because i was teaching the next day and he wanted to catch up and we sat there talking about this sort of pipe dream of arranging for everyone to go over to berlin i would help him with the archives even though i don't speak he would provide the german i would provide the history you know we, we could work together on this project and he gave me so oh, i meant to bring it he gave me a a lantern a paper lantern that his grandfather had given him when he was a bit a child kind of, you know, passing the baton on sort of yeah. thing and that night he was rushed into hospital and died the next day wow i went with him in the ambulance stayed with him overnight and stay with him until he died. He passed away. I don't think he quite accepted how ill he was. Right. But it was that. It was a very. It was very nice. Exp- not nice, but you know, it was lovely to be able to spend that his final day with him. Yeah. But we talked a lot in the time that he had the energy, and a lot of it was built around this guilt he had about having never written this biography. Right. So yeah, baton passed. Okay. And so then you you end up in hospital with him, and he's in as you said he passes away so then so then what you 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 sit you sat i I guess you sat in his place right yeah so i sat on it for a while Um, and you go right what do i do was it that was that the most prevalent thought in your head at that time yeah it burned it burned there it was burning away for a while and then i went away so this was december so the following easter i went to visit an old friend uh, who lived in scotland and we we well met halfway it wasn't quite halfway but you know went up to the lake district we booked a place together took our dogs, just went for dog walks and things like that. And it was ticking it. It was like that space to think made things crystallise. And I thought, right, you know, I need to do this. I want to do this. I don't know how on earth I'm going to be able to arrange it. But maybe if I did it... I had two ideas came to me that weekend. One was that if I'm going to do it, I'm going to write a comic. I think because I was really into reading and comics and I was drawing a lot. I've always drawn a lot. Right. Not, not professionally, just as a creative outlet. Yeah. And I, I thought, you know, I, th- I could just Im- immediately see the visual potential of producing something that was telling his story in visual form. And there's a number of comics I've been reading which were sort of biographical comics. Yeah. And that immediately stuck with me. Um, what, what ones were you reading? 
Are these by particular? Is there like a particular? Well, there's definitely author publishers. who does no, not so much authors, but publishers. So, right. Self Made Hero is one. Myriad Press is another. Um, I'm trying to think, but they generally tend to do historical and biographical graphic novels about famous individuals. Right. But these individuals are like you know, like Che Guevara and okay, and stuff. Yeah. Not so they're like, not very specialist. No, no, and I think sort of. But I was. Uh, I was definitely so. I was convinced that I wanted to tell a story, and I didn't want it to be a history book. I, I think sort of if I started going down that path, I, I knew I'd fall back on what I did in archaeology, which is quite academic. Yeah, and I wanted it to be accessible. I think you know his story is is not just his personal story, but his story is situated in a story that very few people know about. Right. I, if you go to a Waterstones and you go and look in the section on German history, yeah. It will be 95 books on the Nazis, two books on the medieval period, one book on either side of those periods, and maybe right. a couple on what happened with the, the, you know, the dissolution and reunification of Germany. Right. There is nothing on the period of the 20th century that the Nazis were in power about the other voices. Right. The communists, the socialists. And I, I really felt that that was something that needed to be addressed. In my crazy idea, I thought a comic would be would be the most accessible way of producing that. Yeah, and keeping me away from writing a very academic text. Okay, and and are you are you are you capable of writing an academic text? Would that be something that you you wouldn't see as a huge challenge? Because for me, stuff like that is like I'd, I'd much rather sit there and dictate it and take twice as long. I think than to sit and type. And and do uh, for me, I find that very intimidating. Not that I can't do it, I just know that I suck at it. I suck I know, at getting it done. I like writing, and like you know, when I did the PhD, that was one hundred twenty thousand words, right? You know, admittedly, over sort of four years or so. Yeah, but I always enjoyed writing. I, I find I, I I've always found, and it, it's not just archaeology. When I do web stuff, and I've written about that, I like to think I've got quite a nice balance between sort of technical and accessible yeah so I, I don't i'm not massively afraid of writing a big text and i actually quite enjoy the act of writing I right. find you know it, it does require a massive amount of focus yeah which is very difficult you know <laughs> like if to write i generally would have to go and take myself away somewhere right but generally the act of writing itself i find quite cathartic yeah you know like getting ideas down sort of getting a structure down and then breaking that up and then flowing through a narrative yeah. to sort of get that, you know, join the dots in those in that piece. I enjoy writing about things that I'm passionate about. And there's sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll make social media posts that may possibly have a little bit more sort of ambition to them in the, in the sort of text department. But yeah, it's that getting started thing, I think, is, the, the, is looking at the bottom of the mountain. I think once you, once you get into it and, and you're in that sort of pocket... And it's flowing. That's mm. I do enjoy it then, but but yeah, I mean, everyone's different. I think a big part of the problem is is schools kill ex- excitement about writing. Yeah, you know, the act of writing is in most schools an act of torture, and it, and it's very usually irrelevant. I think sort of everyone can write, and I suppose the, the, the two challenges with writing is one the mountain like you say yeah. you know how am I going to tackle this beast 
Yeah. And the only way, the only solution is planning and research yeah. and breaking it up into smaller chunks. And that's, you know, and it's not just writing that, so you can say that about anything. But also the other thing is not worrying about the end product. Like, because, and, I, and I'm guilty of this, you know, I'm a perfectionist, but I've learned, I'm learning slowly the hard way that if you obsess about and focus on getting it right in the end, you'll find 101 reasons either not to start, which is probably where my uncle fell through. Right, yeah. Or getting a certain way down and then going back and thinking, oh, it's not quite right. Here's a question for you. If your uncle had done it, would it have done him the justice that yours will do, given that he was in so much pain and had so many I think, issues? I think he, he would have done it very differently. Like, and I'm not just talking about the medium. Hmm. I think he would have told a very different story. Like I said, he was a theatre producer, so I think he would have done something very dramatic and theatrical. It sounds like a cinematic, it very, a very cinematic... Uh, what am I trying to say here? When I read the website earlier, Finding Albert, where you essentially sort of pitch what you're going to do and what, why you're doing it, I read it earlier and I was like, this sounds like a fucking great TV show. Hmm. Or documentary. It sounds like something for the screen. It sounds like something, and he sounds like a character that could be very easily explored and put into a longer form sort of television format. Let's say. So yeah, I guess he. I guess you're right. He probably would have done it from the angle of a very theatrical. I think if he'd done it, it would have been very theatrical and very political. Right. And, I, and I, we'll come on to his life in a bit more detail, but he. You cannot divorce his life from politics. Right. But there's political as in a participant in politics, and there's political as in a message that a narrative is trying to deliver. Mm. And I think for my uncle, it would have been the latter. It like comes back to what I was saying to you before outside, is that I've tried to be objective about this. He's my great-grandfather, and, yeah. you know, I love him. Or even though I met him, I love him because he's family, and I love him because of what he stood for, and I love him because... He brought up my gran, who I adored, and, and instilled most, like, most of my values, either directly or through my mother. And that's been a very big challenge, trying to divorce that love from peeling apart the layers of history, exposing some things that are good, some things are bad. Yeah. And I think with my uncle, he would have partly have been paralysed by that. Yeah. And partly would have, because he idolised him, rather than just loving him, I think there would have been a political narrative that would have been very much focused on him being a hero. Right. And I, I've, I, one thing that's been incredibly challenging throughout this process is trying to take keep a step back and have that love for him and that desire to tell his story yeah. without idolising him. Right. I'll leave that to the audience, you know. Uh, if they, yeah. yeah, that makes sense. And so you're in the Lake District... I guess this is where you, where the, the moment is where you finally you go right. I, ha I have to do this. Probably the pub. Yeah, <laughs> you're in the Lake District and you're with your friend. Yeah, and I'm guessing you you bounce this idea off your friend. I'm not even sure. I do. I think it's like an it's a thing that's just germinating. Right. There's a long drive up there. There's a period of time where we're just going for walks and and hanging out, playing chess and stuff like that, and then. And then driving back. And I think there's just this slow period of reflection which I hadn't had time for. Yeah. And it just, I think it was probably on the drive home, it was just whirring around in my head. I had a lot more clarity. Yeah. 
about how I might tackle it. And the first thing that popped into my head, apart from the comic book idea was, so the second thing, <laughs> was the only way I could do is to raise money. Um, because it's not just about sitting there with pens and, and, and paper. Yeah. It's about research. So I knew I needed to go to Germany to go and find out more. So I started a Kickstarter on the back of that. I, I sort of just had this brainwave, just this idea that I randomly buy crap on Kickstarter all the time and yeah. fully up know that it's something that may never happen. It's, yeah. You're investing in an idea. You're not investing in a product. Right. And I thought that way of getting lots of people to chip in a small amount would help me be able to take some time out from work, pay for my flights and accommodation, go to Stuttgart where he grew up yeah, and then Berlin where the archives are. Okay. And so you make this Kickstarter Mm-hmm. And and with things like Kickstarter comes uh, a certain amount of PR. Let's say there there has to be you, you you have to sell you have to sell this you know you have to pry the money out of people's wallets, don't you? Somehow. So how do you pitch it to 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 people you may not you may not know necessarily? I think um, I was quite naive. I just primarily hoped that I could tap into my existing networks and like I said before this that you do sort of I make websites for a living yeah and the web the web development community is where all social media started yeah so there's a very strong base of people in that I'm I don't have a strong base of people but there's a strong base of people that are interested in 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 what you do outside of making websites right and so I just naively thought if I could tap into that if I could get Hundred people to tap in, ten quid. Yeah, so it's, it's very that's manageable. A, that's a flight to Berlin. Yeah, and some accommodation for a couple of days. And so, how does your Kickstarter go? Does it go better than you thought? It went better than I thought. Yeah, and I didn't have to do. I mean, I didn't. It could have done better, I think, if I had really pushed it. Yeah. Um, it I was very transparent about I didn't really know what I was doing. But yeah. I, and one of the things when you do a Kickstarter project is they ask you or they, they, are, they tell you to be very upfront about the risks. I was extremely naive. I mean, like this, with hindsight, the one thing I did which was incredibly naive was I thought if I went over to Berlin in May, I'd have a finished product by November. Right. And I, and I think sort of that was a naivety born of how much information could there be? Like, yeah. you know, I thought like, you know, what I kind of knew one of the things in communist Germany they used to do is write a Lebenslauf and it's German for CV. So basically right. when someone's on their last legs, they would write their CV and it would be like almost like a, a very short chronology of their life and their involvement in the party. Yeah. It's like, a, it's not just a German, well, it's more a communist German thing, but you know, it's a more, it's more than a CV. It's kind of like a, a reflection. Yeah. So I had that in German, and I'd sort of, well, I don't speak German, that's a slight problem, we'll come on to that. <laughs> but I sort of picked it apart, and I got to figure out, you know, what the dates were, any people that were mentioned, what the locations that are mentioned. And it gave me a fleshing, you know, a broad skeleton of his life. So I, I, I knew that I could sort of probably tell a story based around those points, you know, take each point that he mentions and sort of expand it a bit, and then just have this sort of narrative about, a boy growing up in Stuttgart that becomes a socialist that then 
fights the Nazis and then fights the Spanish and then goes to a concentration camp and then ends up in America. There wow. we go. Bit the, bap off. There it is. <laughs> yeah. And okay. And so where is where do you begin this this? So you have the this sort of reflection, this CV, I guess. This is your. Is this your? What relics or family heirlooms or, or text? What what is available to you in your base pack? What can you reach for to build this narrative of who this man is before you have to board a plane and really start to to dig in? To be honest, before I went to Germany, the only thing I had was his Lebenslauf. Yeah. Apologies to any Germans listening. <laughs> uh, and there's a couple of books that he's mentioned in, yeah. in like a, a small paragraph that I'd seen. And then also he wrote a few books, right. which I have, access, I have some copies of, right. most of which are in German. Some of them were reproduced in other languages, like English and French. Right. But they're more, because he was a historian, they're more his histories at a time rather yeah. than about him. Right. So in terms of his life, I had very little. Okay. At, little as in almost nothing. Right. So I guess we should begin his story as you know it, I guess, and and and, and retell it as as you're finding the pieces. You know, yeah. His so, name is Albert. Uh, what is his What is his second name? Well, that's the first mystery <laughs> in the puzzle. So, all right, his name was Albert Schreiner. Right. Um, Schreiner means carpenter in German, so it's a really terrible thing to search for on Google because right. you just get lots of German carpenter websites. Um, <laughs> Yeah. So the first piece of the puzzle is him being born. Right. No records at all. Okay. No records at all. I know he was born in August 1892. I do some digging. I forgot the first place I go. So when, when I raise the money off Kickstarter, the first place I go to is Stuttgart. How much to, money did you raise? About £1,400. That's good. That's very good going. It was good going. I completely didn't factor in the costs of travel and actually producing the thing, but right, okay. but I'll, I'll cover the. It's a start. It's a start. No, right. that, that got me to Germany. It got, it got me uh, like a week in Germany with two days in Stuttgart, yeah, and four or five days in Berlin. So yeah, Stuttgart was the start of the problem because you know that was the making of him. I knew bits about that, but the records are very well poor. Yeah, not many survive. As a bit of history, Germany up until 1918 was a series of monarchies. So there wasn't really a unified Germany. There was a German empire, which had Kaiser Wilhelm at, mm. at the time as the sort of the Kaiser yeah. emperor, basically. Or, and he's the chap that was assassinated, which, which set the dominoes. No, no, he was... Oh. So he was... Kaiser Wilhelm was the Kaiser of Germany. Right. Well, Kaiser Wilhelm II. So Europe at this time was basically a series of interrelated families. You had the Habsburgs... I think the Habsburgs. You have basically the 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 Austria-Hungary Empire because yeah. they were that was one empire at the time. You had the English monarchy. You had the Kaiser, and they were all kind of related, um, right. but all very jealous of each other. My cousin's got more of Africa than yours has, or right. something like you know. It was, it was it was very it was very built into this empire imperial mindset, right? Um, and go back to your point, so. The kickoff, and there's a lot more underlying stuff than than the assassination. But the assassination was the assassination of Franz Ferdinand. That's so, the one. Yeah, yeah, Franz Ferdinand, not the band. Um, <laughs> yeah. The the Archduke of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand was assassinated in Sarajevo as part of a growing political unrest in the Balkans. Right. 
he was the son of the sort of the leader of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, right? Who had very close relations with Germany, and that's what triggered World War One, um, which essentially Austria said, "We're going to kick off." Germany said, "I oh, will kick off with you." That's kind of what started all that, right? Yeah, so uh, my earlier point was essentially when you're re- researching somewhere like Stuttgart, you're, yeah. you're not researching German history, you're researching Baden-Württemberg, which is the, the, the country that used to exist within the German Empire. Right. And it means that all the archives are quite disconnected. They're not quite joined up. There's different ways. There's very, a lot of regional differences. They're all part of a unified Germany now, but it all makes things a little bit more complicated. And, and and how do they present themselves in the archives? What are they? Are they are they ledgers? Are they old newspaper clippings? Are they what what form do these these breadcrumbs take? So the first breadcrumb was his birth certificate, which we discovered through a very helpful archivist in Glasterhausen, I think, which is just outside Stuttgart where he lived. One thing I gathered was that his dad was a socialist. And an alcoholic, family failing. But right. his, dad, his dad was a, uh, was a socialist. And he, at that time, socialism was perceived as very dangerous. It was an enemy to this sort of monarchic view of the world. Right. And a lot of the, there was no thing, there was very few things like trade unions. So the socialists were seen as causing a lot of unrest. It meant that they had to move, the family, my great-grandfather's family, had to move around a lot for work because as soon as you were blacklisted in an area, you had to find work elsewhere. He was an engineer. So they move around all over the place in southern Germany. When my great-grandfather was born, they were in Stuttgart. Right. And it turns out his name, his birth name wasn't Schreiner. And that was so, my gut feeling is that was so his dad could get work. He changed his name so he could get work because he was on this blacklist. So they took his wife's maiden name, which was Poser. Right. So the reason we couldn't, we, we knew an Albert was born in this village or town on this date but we couldn't find the record, and it was because the surname had changed. So right. you can start to see that there's like a political narrative here in the family yeah. that underpins his existence even before he's born. Yeah, I love this. This is a deep dive. Yeah, so, right, so you get this, and you've... you've how, do you, how do you figure out that the name has changed? Uh, the, uh, basically, I got, I got in touch through a friend in Germany to communicate directly with the... The archivist or whatever in the town. Because right. most towns, most archives from that period of time are actually tied into churches. Right. So it will be, the birth records are actually in the ecclesiastical archives. They're not in like, like we would have here, like a town archive or a, or a state archive or a county archive. They're actually in these churches. Right. And so through a friend that was in southern Germany or a family friend, because we still have some connections over there. The, uh, they were able to find, get in touch with this archivist from a Glasterhausen, and they were well, we found a record for an Albert on this day, but it's a different name, but the parents' names are the same. So that, I think, sort of, at that moment in time, his dad was using a slightly different name, probably to get work in one of the factories in Stuttgart. Right. Okay. And then the were archivists along the way, do they go, oh, I have a friend who works in so-and-so, and uh, you should probably give them a call. Or how helpful are these archivists? Did anyone get like involved in your? Did they ever get in, not invested? Not Stuttgart. I mean, language, Berlin, yes, but also you got like Stuttgart's quite. It's not provincial. It's a big city, right? But it's sort of in a, a sort of quite a regional area. So 
understandably, because it is Germany, not a lot of people speak English. You know, it'd be very rude of me to go over there and expect everyone to go, hello, Jeeves, have you got a, yeah. have you got anything on a Oberschreiner? <laughs> um, like, but on the flip hand, I don't speak much German, yeah. which is a bit of a challenge. So generally, in Berlin, it's been better because Berlin's a lot more cosmopolitan There's a lot and, and a lot younger. Yeah. A lot more people speak English, so they were able to help. And the second time, because I went twice to Berlin, the second time I went, I went with a family friend who had been there when my uncle died. Right. They live in Germany, so they were able to come and and basically sort of shout at people in German for me and get get the things I needed. Right. That's amazing. So you've you've, you've figured out that the the birth name has changed. Where is the next breadcrumb? The next breadcrumb's 1918, so he would have been 20. No, 18, what's 18 plus 8? 26. Right. Because they, they didn't have a great deal of information in Stuttgart. And I'll show you, though, and again, not great for podcasts, but I'm sure Andy That's can fine. find a way That's of fine. producing it. So I brought with me... Cole has brought uh, with photos, him... Yeah. Some family photos and also photos from the archives, some of which are stuck together. So the one photo they had in the archives in Stuttgart was from 1918. Now... This is a time I need to come on to a bit of a history lesson. So I've already said that Germany had a sort of, it was an empire. Yes. It had a monarch. It had a series of country, a series of country states. Each had their own monarch. So there was a prince of Baden-Württemberg. They were all interrelated, you know. In 1918, Germany had a a socialist revolution. Right. So the monarchy. Now what does a socialist revolution look like? Well, so in 1917, Russia had a, a pretty big one. You right. Know, uh, so the the monarchy at the time that he uh, they were overthrown, and the sort of the the economic and socio political inequality was seized by the workers and overthrew the government. Right. And then in 1918, Germany kind of did the same, but in a slightly less over exuberant way. But it also it had it didn't have quite as strong leadership as as the Russians did under Lenin and Trotsky, and it also in Germany, it, because, it, because it had these monarchy states, it was very fragmented. So it was very difficult to have a unified response to anything. Right. But what they did do overnight is have a revolution, so, which, which essentially heralded the end of the First World War. Right. But that, which was November the 9th, 1918. I'm fiddling around looking for this photo. I know There's a wealth of material in this uh, folder. This is a real little treasure trove. (laughs) So anyway, in the archives in Stuttgart, they had a photo of my great-grandfather in military uniform, and it was the advent, or it it was the assembly of the new socialist, the Free People's Republic of Württemberg. Yeah. So essentially what had happened is they'd had a revolution, they displaced the monarchy in that, in Baden-Württemberg, right. and he was appointed the Minister of War for that new government. Oh wow! And and how do you and how does he get to this position? Is this 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 is the issue with trying to find someone in very fragmented archives? I guess, isn't it? Well, is that there are big there are big leaps in their life yeah, sort of missing? I mean, there's definitely had to be a degree of unpicking to see his story getting up to that point. Right. So his life before say 1918 is is very poorly documented right he was born in stuttgart he became a what he started working when he was 12 and he got a job at a technical college which basically meant you worked an all a 12 day shift a 12 hour day shift 
in, in an engineering factory. And then you went to classes in the evening. Right. And that was seen as sort of like an act of, you know, a position of in, immense privilege to be awarded this. So he, he, he was doing this, but on the, say, on the long side that, he was starting to get into the socialist movement. Now, the socialist movement in Stuttgart, or, or the socialist, Stuttgart was seen as one of the big hubs outside Berlin of the socialist movement. Right. You had very influential people like Clara Zetkin, who was a famous, a very early political feminist and mentor of Rosa Luxemburg, who you might have heard of. Rosa Luxemburg, and we'll come on to her because her, what happens in the November Revolution with her is very important and very tragic. Right. But she was seen as the figurehead along with Karl Liebknecht of this socialist movement, two idealists who fundamentally believed in the causes of socialism, you know, the abolishment of colonies, the, the, the equality between the sexes, the equality between workers you know, the fundamental cause of, of a socialist ideology. Right. And very independent of what was going on in Russia, because remember the Russian Revolution hadn't happened yet at this time. Right. So there were people like Lenin and Trotsky very much involved in this international dialogue, but the actual conversation was often happening in Germany. And so this is an environment that Albert was growing up in. He became very influenced by it and was communicating a lot with some of its main figures, like Catherine Duncker, I've mentioned Rosa Luxemburg, Clara Zetkin. And then in 1907, and I don't know about his involvement quite, but in 1907 there was an international congress in Stuttgart for socialism. And it right. was also the first, the world's first international conference on, on feminism. So right. it was seen, the two were seen as hand in hand, although... This was still a very patriarchal society, and Germany is a very patriarchal country. So the women were given a platform, but it was a slightly smaller platform over right. one side, sort of thing. I see. But at least they were. Oh no, definitely. And, you know, they, they, I mean, the, the fundamental argument was you couldn't look at trying to peel back inequality without addressing inequalities in race and gender. You know, and and the idea of social inequality came down to. This idea of colonial, you know, one of the biggest points of it was about the problems with colonialism because right. essentially it's lining the pockets of the rich. It creates essentially, and we're seeing a lot of this with the Black Lives Matter movement at the moment, you know, it objectifies sort of communities around right. the world. You, they're a resource to be colonized and taken over. And that's right. again one of the sort of catalysts for World War One, much more than the assassination probably in the Balkans. It was actually just this, this money grab of Africa and the Caribbean. Right. And Asia. So yeah, anyway, in Stuttgart, 1907, there's a big congress. All these leading political figures arrive. Alberts would have been 15. Right. And he's there as part of... very impressionable age. Yeah, yeah, very much. And I think he's sort of really takes to heart a lot of what goes on. Yeah. This isn't documented. Some of, some of this is conjecture. Right. I know he was there at this time. I know he was involved with these people. These people were massively involved in one of the biggest socialist congresses right. today. And the rest, you sort of have to paint yourself in a way. You do. And I think there's a sort of tension I have of being, trying to be objective and then trying to fill in the gaps. Yeah. That's more of a storytelling frustration i suppose and, and, and problems i have with my own confidence rather than necessarily right i don't you know sort of problem with the app the historical record or what have you yeah so yeah 1907 you know this big socialist congress in 1912 he he well basically he becomes a journeyman now in germany there's a long history of becoming a journeyman which is essentially when you when you're doing a craft 
like a carpenter or a, or a factory worker or whatever, as soon as you've got the necessary qualifications, you travel and you basically, you're given free lodgings and you have to learn about your craft in different places. Wow. So, and it's, it's a tradition that still continues to this day and some, in some, some people still do it. Just makes sense, doesn't it? It does. And you have, and it sounds silly, but like you have, it's almost like Amish, like they have a very particular uniform and a stick yeah. that they recognize. And the re- that's important because it means that they're recognizable so that if people, they go to an area, people can offer them lodgings, food. Right work etc yeah and i think the idea i don't know how long the period is uh, i don't know if it's a year or longer but the idea is you go off and travel and and learn more about your craft but not just get siloed in one particular area of knowledge that you Mm. try and pick up from as many different people as possible and what they get at the end of that is not only a well-oiled machine you'd hope in their craft but the, the the byproduct of that is this young person has now got life experience. Yeah, exactly. And they know their country a little more. And they probably know who they are a little more. And I think also it probably teaches a great deal of humility. You yeah. know, the fact that you you set out with a backpack and a stick from home and on foot you go to another city, yeah. not knowing where you're where you're sleeping that night, where you'll be working tomorrow, yeah. where the food's coming from. It's like being on tour. It's at drumsticks yeah. <laughs> instead. Yeah. Back of the tour. Will bus. I make make it home? The journeyman. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and, and and that that is like a very that's an archetypal plot, isn't it? Throughout all of human storytelling, mm. I mean, it's bloody Lord of the Rings in some ways as yeah, well, isn't you, it? You know, you've got to travel to find yourself, sort of. Yeah, yeah. and also there's there is like you said, you know, the humility side. I, I'm not big into martial arts, or, or I don't claim to know anything really about martial arts. But I saw a great interview with Guy Ritchie. And in other interviews with people that are really into this Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and my our old the old sick one singer Ben Curd, he got really into Brazilian jiu-jitsu while he was in the band, and we would talk at length about it on on drives and tell me all about what he just learned. And one of the things that people who really take it seriously like to do is they like to go to other, I don't know if they call gyms or dojos yeah. or you know these great these gracie places, and they find that. If you if they're traveling around and they're doing they're practicing with other people in different gyms, mm. then that is where they will learn a lot of humility as well because they may be the best in their particular room at it. Yeah. But then you go to somewhere else and someone else can tap you out with their te- you know, and, and the humility comes from finding yourself through failures and 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 experiencing other people's techniques and takes on on things so you might think you're the most badass carpenter in the world head to the next city and there's there might be a guy who gives you a technique that absolutely blows your mind and makes you feel like a bloody ape Mm. i think it gives you perspective as well i think sort of i'll go back to your martial martial arts analogy you know i think sort of one thing it uh, martial arts does is it teaches you about it's almost meditative, you know, about yeah. reflection, about humility, about your place in a wider in a wider universe. Yeah. I mean, this is like, and, and you can see it today. And we, we had a brief chat about social media. You know, the biggest danger to, is is to ha- fall into a silo. Yeah, you know, because then you com- on the one hand, like you can see why people do it; it's comfortable. Yeah, but on the other hand, you end up with silos are impervious. You know, not knowledge doesn't come in and it doesn't go out, and you end up just having this noise, yeah, re- reassuring noise, the echo chamber. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I found that during the uh, the last elections, is that the the algorithm had 
the out my Facebook algorithm obviously knows that I'm a bloody left winger, and and all I could see on the day of the election was red. Yeah. Labour Party this, Jeremy Corbyn that. And it, and, it, and it feeds into my age, it feeds into the fact that my networks are very, very much the creative industry, which are inherently left-leaning. And, and Jeremy Corbyn, uh, his version of Labour was leaning that way. And I was convinced, I was like, we got this, we got this, we got this. This is yeah. going to happen, this is going to be interesting. There's going to be a new political system or there's politics is going to change and then labor got absolutely annihilated at the polls and that was a moment where i was like i cannot trust social media anymore because it does it funnels you off into these silos i mean it capitalizes on what you what you find comforting yeah because it, and i think it will do that if you you were really into the history of wwf or mm. wrestling or whatever it's all you'd see because its job is to keep you on the app yeah it's, it's, it's you know it's, I mean there's, there's various conversations at the moment about it but you know the fundamental thing with it and I remember going to a talk about this about 10 years ago in the, again in the web development community yeah if you're not paying for something you're the product so yes I, that was in the social dilemma yeah. recently when I watched and that, that. so you know if you're if, if a company is sharing your images and I know as someone that hosts the websites the, the, the transmission of information images videos online is very expensive you know there's a lot of money that goes into storing this information sharing it the bandwidth that's involved what the, where's that money coming from and the only way it's coming from is selling your information yeah. and so it's going to make you warm and fuzzy by sharing stuff that it thinks you already know because that makes you use it more yeah and actually you know like going back to what we're talking about there's a I can see People think a lot of this stuff's new, and it isn't. Right. You know, yes. Yeah, you can, you can see screen. how the media is controlled through large parts of human history, and it's it's not a new phenomenon. It's a new medium. Yeah. But it's not a new phenomenon. So he's traveling around. He's on tour. Let's say he's on tour. He ends up in in the in the sort of the southern eastern part of Germany, Freiburg, and he's called up. For military service so one of the things that they also had as well as this journeyman thing is they had conscription so you had right. to do your service you had to do two years military service now again because germany was broken up into states it, they didn't have a german army they had regional armies so he signed up to the royal saxon army well signed up was conscripted <laughs> yeah. in 19 someone signed him up so yeah. he was 20 years old he was signed up to a machine gun corps in the Royal Saxon Army. And what year is this? 1912. 1912. So a machine gun corps is going to be a very different corps um, than, than what it would be now, because I guess the machine gun is a very new technology in military history. Yeah, I, think, I, I mean, I think they had been around, but there was definitely adapting to it. But right. also, you know, ultimately, the machine gun would be the primary weapon of World War One. Yeah. And... With that primary weapon, not only becomes, uh, and obviously you're you speaking to Julian, um, it's not only about a new weapon, it's about a new means of warfare because yeah. you've got to circumnavigate that new weapon. Yeah. So, yeah, he becomes part of it. And I think, I, I think because of his engineering background, that's why he ends up in the machine gun corps because I've spoken to military historians. These are very temperamental pieces of equipment that break all the time. Right. So having a guy that knows one end... Uh, of the other from a, a, a screwdriver and a spanner yeah, is going to be really helpful in a military situation. But yeah. bear in mind also that Germany is not in any conflict at this time. Right. 
This is so it's not a big, bad, scary calling. It's, no, it's it's something he's probably been prepared for for a while. That's a good option. That yeah, well, no, I don't think it's an option. I think he he had to do it. Right. But actually, I don't think it. I wouldn't say it was cushy, but I don't think it was a pretty terrifying experience to be right. down in Freiburg, sort of the the hilly southern eastern parts of Germany, sort of being in a machine gun corps. Yeah, like, you know, probably just. Sounds kind of cool. Taking apart and reassembling guns a lot. Yeah. Do you want to come? That was why I joined Army Cadets. Yeah. It's like, you want to go play with guns? Yes. I mean, guns are horrible when they're, when they're you know, in the wrong hands. They're used, but, yeah. But, but, it, 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 but, but generally, I, I think guns are very they're fun if you're, if you're using them for fun. I think it's very difficult not to be in immense awe of them. Yeah. You, know, as you have a, to respect as a, them. As a, as a sort of as a tool and as a as something that someone's... They're horrific. You know, I, as a pacifist, I'm actually abhorred by them, but I think mechanically and they're ingenious and they're also... They wield immense power. Yes. And it's very difficult not to be awestruck by something that wields immense power. Yeah. Have you ever fired a weapon? E, well, shotgun. Yeah, that's an experience, sort of isn't it? Pigeon sort of nonsense. And how did you feel about that? What was I grieving for the the, the, the no no <laughs> no well no I mean some people were so so that they no were... no no I've always had not an like sorry right my parents were pacifists they used to run a peace festival they used to take me to Glastonbury as a kid right they hated I was never allowed toy guns even like cap guns yeah which is the one thing that's going to push someone to be really interested in guns. yeah it's this forbidden <laughs> yeah, yeah thing right forbidden fruit. Yeah, I remember getting bollocking in Coventry. We went to Covent, went shopping in Coventry. How exciting! And buying a cap gun and getting absolutely laid into by my parents. <laughs> much car journey home. <laughs> We're spending seventy nine p on a cap gun. Or whatever, you know? See, there's a start. I mean, when I was a kid, I had a basically had an armory. Essentially, I had a I had a box full of toy guns of various. Some were plastic. Some were metal. You know, some were this and that, some were this and that, (laughs) and that was, I loved it, I loved it, and uh, yeah, no, obviously I've seen what what guns can do, and and I grew up with with guns in the house, and the dad's dad owned shotguns all all throughout my um, childhood. He tooled up. And, and, you know, sometimes they, they they would appear, and I would be able to hold it, and Look at it, and and the the moment I did something wrong, it went away. Yeah, I remember one day he gave me twenty. Well, minutes. It's about you know like respecting the, worst thing you, the weapon. Like, so the worst thing you can do with a child is tell them something forbidden. Yeah, and the second worst thing you could do is give them unfettered access without teaching them respect and responsibility. Yeah, about it. You know, there's a good halfway house. I think. Yeah, you know, I, I was one extreme. Yeah, um, I could point it at the wall kids. and go, pam, 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 you know, pam, 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 I've got it, right? But there was this one time he spent 20 minutes telling me, and they would come down every sort of six months or something, and it would be like, it would be, you hold it. You it clean was, them blindfolded. It was like a thing, table. yeah, it was like a thing, though. It was like, oh, you know, now I get to hold it again. Do you know what I mean? And look at it, yeah. feel the weight. And, and I remember once he spent t- like 20 minutes, half an hour telling me, about it, how it works, safety catch, all this, all proper, like not obviously not loaded or anything, yeah, yeah. made safe. 
my sister comes home from school, swing it right around, point it at her, yeah. straight back in the in the gun cabinet in the safe. And that was how that's how it has to be. Yeah. You, as soon as you fuck it up, it goes away. It's got to be it's the memory. only way you do it. Yeah. Is is that? And even when I was in cadets, I remember being led down with my SA eighty rifle, and if I couldn't it's seven or five times in a row make the weapon safe with the seven-point check, breech barrel gun, um, magazine, breech barrel gun. I think that was no breech. Oh, put the gun back in the box now. So basically, yeah, right. So and, and if you couldn't do that five times, you didn't go on the range. You didn't get any, any, anywhere near a blank, you know? And so, I mean, I've had a very, I guess, a different experience to a lot of people with, with firearms or weapons mm. because they've always been around. And I've, I've, well, I say I've always respected them. I've had it drummed into me, literally drilled into me. So I don't mind a bit of a uh, bit of fun with a weapon, as long as everyone around me knows the score as well. Because mm. I'll be that guy who fucking take it off you as well. But yeah, we've we've di- we've digressed right. again. So he goes to the machine gun corps where he it all sounds machine quite gun fun. Cushy non-war thing, and then as you've raised earlier, it all kicks off. Right. So in 1914, he's sent to the Western Front. So he become he's in. I've actually had to do a lot of digging as well because because there's different regional armies. The archives are all very disparate. There's not like a it's not like in in England, for example, where you have the sort of the the centralised military records. Right. I think at Kew Gardens in Germany, they were all moved around, and also the the added frustration is that when Hitler tried to one of the, one of his exercises as a nationalist, unsurprisingly, was to try and unify and consolidate these disparate states, he moved a lot of the archives into Berlin from all these regions. And lo and behold, it was bombed to buggery and a lot of the records are lost. And this is the issue with a pre-digital era, isn't it? Is that if you wanted to lose or destroy information, you'd have to find every single copy of it, wouldn't you? And and destroy it, and you wouldn't just be able to hit, you know, control out, delete, or whatever it yeah. is, <laughs> you know, whatever the shortcut is, or, or 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 you know, take a hammer to a hard drive and, and set fire to the building. Where you'd have to find every copy of it, or set it on fire, or yeah, it's a blessing and a curse. I mean, yeah. this age is fantastic, but it's also, you know, I'm not very disciplined about controlling my online presence. Yeah, but with children, I'm now starting to think, you know, do they? I see how flippant they are. Yeah. And, and that causes me some concern. But then on the flip side, you know, it's really annoying when you know that there was one record that can tell you a massive part of your, your family history. Yeah. And it was bombed, you know. <laughs> so there's two records. So I know you went to the Western Front, and I know that because you can, with each regiment had its like own history. So although they don't mention the individual members of the regiment, and I know which regiment he was in, 182nd, I can trace the movements of that regiment through different conflicts. Right. Um, mostly at the Western Front for two years. So Belgium, the Somme. Yeah. But the first Somme, not the second one. Yeah, so moving around, mostly the battered trenches of Northwest Europe. Right. As a machine gunner. Probably annihilating lots of people. Right. Um, so you think he saw his, his fair share of... Yeah. Of horrors. Yeah, I think it would have been horrific. And I think there was probably a great deal of tension because he was, and this is what really frustrates me. So he was a massively, he was a patriot, you know, and people always think the socialists aren't patriotic because our notion of patriotism is tied up with nationalism and Mm. in some cases the monarchy. Right. 
yeah, you know, a Union Jack waving or whatever. That doesn't being a socialist just means that you love your country and you want it to change. It doesn't mean you want it. You know, you hate your country. You hate the status quo. Let's say right. So uh, the reason I say that is that he he fought in the First World War and was massively proud of being German. And although he may not have believed the cause, he wanted to support his country in that endeavour. Right. But what happens in Germany over this time? So there's a very vocal number of people. I mentioned something before, like Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebknecht. Uh, Karl Liebknecht is an is a, is a MP, a politician in Germany. Right. That are starting to complain. You know, they're not only complaining about the futility of the First World War, like what's the end game? We are losing thousands of people here. On the, also, our economy's knackered. Yeah. The, 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 the industry that we were very strong at, you know, because Germany was the front line of automobile manufacturer, cameras, chemical engineering, it was really strong in. So a lot of the, the reason you've got great cameras from Germany is because not only were they fantastic engineers of the cameras, but also fantastic engineers of the chemicals needed to, to make photographs. Right, I see. So, you know, you've got this fantastic engineer and it's all being diverted into the war effort. Right. And, the you know, the, all the money needed to divert that, because you haven't got customers... <laughs> You know, no one's buying these bullets. It's being paid for by the state. So the state's having to remove its, its expenditure elsewhere. Right. Because, because actually up to a point, like there's a, there's a history of socialist struggle in Germany that required some quite big changes. So they were very early on had a minimum wage and they very early on introduced things like, like holidays, public holidays, staff holidays. You know, like I say staff holidays, you know, like, but actually they were... They were, very, they were very interested in investing in the workers having a sense of being supported by the state. Right. Because that kept them calm. But what happened is that the, 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 that was, the financial investment that was needed for that wasn't possible during, during conflict because all that money had to be diverted into. So you not only had this struggling economy, you had restless workers then because all the, all the stuff that they needed to help them thrive was being taken away from them. Right. So you start seeing big protests. You start in around 1916. And bear in mind, this is halfway through what we now know was the First World War. Yeah. So you're getting people arrested for being... And you start to see the state clamp down on dissent, people complaining about things, people suggesting that there can be a different way of doing things. That's treason, essentially. That's treated as treason. So people are imprisoned for protesting about the war effort. In 1916, Albert's at the Somme. And like I said, there's two Somme. There's a 1916, I think, 1971. Right. He was in the Somme in 1916, and then his regiment is pulled over to the Eastern Front, to Romania. Right. So they go there to suppress an uprising in Romania, supported by the Russians. Because this is a conflict happening on two sides. You've got um, the Russians, which are essentially at this time fighting with the French and the English. And then the Austro-Hungarians and the Germans fighting. And then also there's other battles going on with, for example, the, the Turks and, and what have you, which is why it's called the First World War. You know, it's a world war, all these different socio-political people are getting involved. But, but it, so it's, about, it's a war that's happening for Germany on two fronts. The Western Front, which is what we all think of when we think of the First World War, you know, people in trenches. Mm. But also this, the Eastern Front, which is a, very much, a different kind of landscape, different kind of war. It's much faster moving. Right. Um, 
it's it's more sort of track and trace and sorry, <laughs> it's moving around a lot there's a lot it's not like just bedding in and sort of control, right it's not it. trench warfare it's yeah you're not fighting over square inches of, of a map you know right you're you're really trying to capture territory quickly right mm. and what were the tactics used in that sort of blitz bombing or well yeah so blitzkrieg comes later but yeah it is very it, you know compared to what albert would have been used to which is sitting in a trench for months on end probably moving yeah, hundred meters at a time. Yeah, they are moving miles a day. Right, um, chasing Romanians, which essentially have come into a world war conflict on horseback with cutlasses and rifles. Right, which on the Romanian plains is fine, but then when you're up against machine guns, and it's not, you know, you're not going to last very long. Okay, so as what like Julian said in, in episode one, when I spoke to him, is that would be in a high attrition rate. Mm. Which is a chilling... It's a very technical term, isn't it? Yeah, it yeah. is a coldness it's, it's, to it. It's a sort of... It's a, it's a casualty defined by economics. So yeah. <laughs> rather than the human story. Yeah. Okay, and that, so you find out he's in. he's been put yeah. into the... Uh, which front was this? The Eastern Front. The Eastern Front. I do have a photo of him at the Eastern Front. Excellent. Um, <laughs> so in the centre of that picture is yeah. Albert. So that is shortly after he's promoted... Okay, so I'm looking at a picture of five uniformed gentlemen. Uh, Albert is in the middle. So these are mostly officers, but right, okay. they're working class officers. So in German, Germany is a very hierarchical society. Right. So, or certainly at that time it was. The, so essentially, if you were working class, it's like a non-commissioned officer. If you were working class, yeah. because a lot of the amount of casualties, the sheer amount of casualties in World War One, there was a need to promote people up into the rank of officer. Right, but they fundamentally couldn't have them have the rights and entitlements of being an officer. Right. So they were, there's a German phrase, and I I can't remember. It, technically, it's like officier stellvertreter or something. So it's basically like a non-ranked officer. It's an officer in name, a non-commissioned officer. Yeah, yeah. Which is all the way up to a regimental sergeant major, I think. In the British I think Army. it was just in the, in this context. It was basically to have someone with a bit of authority in the troops. Yeah, if someone else got got capped. Right. To use a street term. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Capped in their ass in Romania in 1916. He's uh, he's got quite the the jawline, hasn't he, Albert? He has a, a striking jawline. Yeah. And what has been known become known in the family as the Shriner eyebrows. Uh, I see, he he looks quite serious. There's some seriousness in his yeah, eyes. Yeah, so there. I can't work out when that photo was taken. I've spoken right. to some military historians that have been able to identify some of the uniform. Yeah, because um, the uniforms are inconsistent. Or are these officers from different parts of Germany here? No, they were all Saxon army. The, right. the reason that they're inconsistent is people are actually wearing them differently. So, right. And this is because this is in a conflict zone. So what's happening is... Very often, people will cover their rankings, right? Because you're the you're the obvious obvious, obvious target. target if I'm a sniper, yeah, yeah, I'm looking for in in bloody uh, what what's his name from Dad's army, um, and bloody Pike comes along and salutes, you know, second lieutenant. Again, as Julian would say, some chinless wonder. Yeah. I'm going to go and shoot this guy first. Yeah, so there's a lot of effort that's required in covering up the symbols of rank but not but in a way that also kind of respects and also they wear their hats differently and things like that so this photo but he's central in this photo i know it's from around 1916 and what i do know is that's he's in he's been promoted in that year there were, there is a 
there is in his Lebenslauf, which I mentioned, he writes that he was promoted in 1960, right, on the Western Front. Okay, uh, what for? Just because he was filling the the the? Do you know the he void? Could filling a void. Uh, like, as in everyone else above him had been killed, capped yeah. to Carlant. It could be that he's shown like, prowess. And yes. prowess. Like, I think he's, from what I can gather from what I've researched, he's a very disciplined person. Yeah. I think that was probably seen as a good thing. And he's a very intelligent person. Uh-huh. You know, like, he, he's, he's come in with the working class troops mm-hmm. and I think sort of, an aptitude or ability to sort of think about very intense situations is probably seen as quite, you know, moderate skill to have in a in armed conflict. And knowing sort of what we do about his later life, it would be, it wouldn't be a stretch to believe that possibly he was a good leader or interested in leadership. Uh, he he seems to fall into leadership than ask for it. So, but that going back to your point, I think you know he probably is quite a natural leader. But then there were also records when he's in the Spanish Civil War about his attitude to the troops, and see he's seen as not aloof but disinterested in in the troops that he's he's commanding then. Right. Um, so I guess we'll get on to that. Yeah, we'll that, come on to that in, in a bit. But I guess the the first thing that jumps out to me there is this guy's seen enough death, enough war. Um, this is and, 20, yeah, so that's twenty years later. Right. So, you know, like. And what, why are you inv- yeah, and why are you investing in guys you know you're going to be pulling the dog tags off of in two days? Possibly, yeah. Jaded. Yeah. So, so yeah, 1916, Romania, he's, prom- well, he's promoted the Western Front, moves to Romania in, in like you say, like, not, it's not, you know, not technically blitzkrieg, but a rapid series of investments on the Eastern Front. There, there's a point to prove as well, twofold. One is that Romania has massive oil reserves. Right. So, that was seen as sort of a, a an objective right. because Germany was running on empty at this time. Well, not running on empty, but, you know, the resources were getting scarce. Yeah. And then secondly, there was a lot, a lot of Western generals that had been, had bad, not bad experience, they, they basically been sent to the Eastern Front as a punishment for being, for poor performance on the Western Front. So they had a point to prove. So right. they, essentially there was a rapid series of advances. They got essentially to Budapest, from the Transvaal Mountains, which is where Dracula's from, obviously the real character Dracula. Yeah. But in that process, Albert is shot. He's uh, shot in the face right? Uh, in, in manoeuvres. And I've been able to work out, uh, bizarrely, uh, through someone that has that regimental record, they and cross-referencing that, the only military record I can find of Albert is a record of his injury. Right. Which isn't reported until 1917, but... It, basically doing some cross-referencing with someone else, a military historian, we've worked out that almost to the day in December 1916, where and when he would have been injured. Right. And where and when was this? So this was in the Turner-Roshu Pass in Romania, um, in rapid manoeuvres. He was shot in the jaw. Do you know much about the German language? I know. I do not. I've been to Germany a bit. On the one hand, it seems quite straightforward. But then you get incidences where they just stick lots of words together and don't worry about spaces, and that becomes a new word. Right. And one of them is the injury he had. And I'd have to look it up, but it's like, basically the German word, there is a German word for, like, jaw wound by bullet. Right. It's just like about (laughs) 25 letters long. Really? And that's what's mentioned. It's like, 
in, in this sort of inventory of casualties. And it's right. like, it's so sobering and depressing to see because it's like a list, it's a page. Yeah. And you can look at it and you find his name and you realize, oh, it's a page of German casualties. And then you realize that's one of 200 pages. Right. Yeah. Of a week's worth of injuries. Yeah. And it's just like, oh my God. Shot in the jaw of, of all places. Of all places. Well, it could be worse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, this is a piece of his, history, of his history that I do know from reading from the website earlier. A year later, he's married, right? He met a childhood sweetheart in the Socialist Youth Party in right. Stuttgart. Uh, so, Emma Schreiner. And they had this childhood sweetheart. He goes home to convalesce, basically. He goes back to Stuttgart. With, to, with his injury, and he's out of action for at least a year. We know that for, in terms of in terms of the military, he's out of action. He's recuperating right. at that. And I, I think it's 1918. Actually, he he marries because he goes. He's he's eventually called back to war. So he, he convalesces. He recovers. He's sent back to the Western Front because basically everything's going tits up. Right. Germans are losing the war. The people at, at the top know this is happening. They panic. So they send you know they're sending people from hospital beds and with limbs to the front to try and sort of stem the flow Did you say wood limbs with wounded limbs oh i thought you said wood limbs i was yeah sorry so, yeah yeah, yeah you get to the western front 19 oh i'd have to look it up 1917 or 18 anyway after he's married uh, well no I, I got a feeling he marries he comes back on leave and marries after right. being sent out again but anyway, right. married, war, you know, yeah. a year between... Jaw hanging off. Slash killers. Yeah. So... Any, any, do you get any sense of any... I mean, it's probably quite traumatic getting shot in the face, isn't it? Any evidence in records of him struggling with any PTSDs or anything like that? Or would that be way too personal, way too detailed? I think... Partly, right, so in context... He only writes once with emotion. Like, there's only one record of him writing with emotion. Wow. And partly that is, I mean, it's really fascinating, and I've had it translated. He writes a poem, basically, from prison in 1919. And that becomes more striking because he's part of this patriarchal, very patriarchal society where men don't expose emotions. Right. Which I, I think it'd be safe to say that the Germans probably are around it, particularly around this time. Mm. But also, he's a historian, so everything he tries to write subsequently becomes very, as an observer, right. and a participant. Yeah, every, a very third person. Exactly, exactly, yeah. yeah. So I don't know. I, I, he, he makes reference in the poem to his experiences in conflict. You can see that there's a rawness there. Yeah. Um, even if it's just in passing in a few words. Like he talks about his experiences in the front and dreaming of girls with flowers in their hair and, right. um, you know, the sort of the, the noises of the guns and things like that. So, it, you know, I think it would be almost impossible not to have been affected yeah. by those experiences. Obviously, now at that time, we had no idea about PTSD and trauma. Right. Yeah. Um, and the psychological impacts. And, and, you know, that was seen as if you were affected adversely by these experiences, you were seen as weak. Right. You know, that's just the reality of the time that we were, we're talking about. Yeah. 
And so you think he's 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 come back on leave, and you you believe that he's married. Oh, what's her name again? Emma. And then you you think he's gone back out to the western. So look, what I think happens, and I'd have to, I don't have the chronology in front of me. So he goes, he gets called up to the western front again. So he goes right. to fight in trench warfare again at a time where Germany are basically massively losing. Right. And he gets sent home on leave and marries Emma. But he the, he gets sent home for two. Well, he doesn't get sent home for this reason. But he all this time where he's certainly after his injury and probably before he's in touch with his socialist friends in in Stuttgart. Right. And they are sending him leaflets and pamphlets about the problems with war, the the war, uh-huh. and the struggles in Germany. And you've got to be really careful about this stuff, you know. If if he's caught with this stuff, it's treason. And if you'll get caught of treason, you get shot. So wow, you know he's having to be really guarded, but he's also observing on the front line a lot of the disenfranchisement of the people that are fighting. Who are we fighting for? Why? You know, the Kaiser's up in his palace, carrying, you know, trying to sort of conquer Europe, and we're we're the ones that are getting shot at, and right. And stuff. So there's there's a balance there to be found that he knows. I feel that he knows that there is a, a tide turning, and that's partly because Germany are losing the conflict, but partly, like I said before, the, the Russian Revolution the year before. There's a sense of optimism that something similar might happen in Germany. Right. So the times that you know the, the winds of change might be blowing. Yeah, like is that Scorpion's reference. Damn. It's also a Scorpion's reference that was massively used in the reunification of Germany. Really? There we go. Well, it makes me look clever. Gorky Park. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so uh, he, he goes back to Stuttgart, but not only to marry, re, or to, yeah, not only to marry Emma, but he's, he's given instructions. So he's been told by the independent socialists, I don't want to get too involved in the really complex socio political spider web of german history but like essentially at this time there's two socialist parties there's a socialist party germany the spd and then there's an independent socialist party the splitters right who were who were what who basically thought the other ones have got fat and on their on their on their sort of troughs of you can see a lot of origins in the problems with left-wing politics in this history (laughs) (laughs) yes Sort Everyone's of, idea sort of, of left wing politics is different to every other person in left wing politics right. idea of left wing politics. Whereas the right wing sort of solidifies and, and hardens. Yeah, and... they just galvanise over cash in the media. So yeah, it's, just, <laughs> you know, like, it's sort of helpless, isn't yeah. it? It's a hopeless thing. Um, but, so yeah. Anyway, this People's Front of Judea that had formed in in Germany, the, the independent socialist, the real independent party, yeah. the, the U, uh, USPD. So they set up basically a poet because the Socialist Party, which was sort of saying all the things it should be saying, but not actually acting on it. Yeah. So when it came to voting in Parliament to financially support the war, because it was a democracy still, even though they had a Kaiser, they still needed Parliament to authorise the 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 you know the, the allocation of war credits, i.e. Right. paying out the public purse to spun some money on some guns. Yeah. They would still it was still required a democratic approval. Right. And all throughout the war, the Socialist Party signed up to that. You know, they, they, they passed those credits. Right. Uh, the exception being Karl, Karl Liebknecht, who was arrested. Uh, the one Why do I know that name? 
Uh, he's very prominent socialist in Germany. Him and Rosa Luxemburg are very often talk together because they were they were friends, if not lovers. I know that she she had lovers in throughout the Socialist Party. Like, that sounds like making something like a slag, but no, she was <laughs> she, no she she. <laughs> she was personally invested in her politics. <laughs> no, but no, she had lovers in the, in the party like Leo Georgish, I can't, I can't say his name, and Clara Zetkin's son. But yeah, so those two, you will hear, when you hear about German socialist politicians of the early 20th century, you will most likely hear Karl Liebknecht and Rosa Luxemburg. Right. Okay. And he, he was the only MP that opposed the war credits and was arrested because of it. Not very democratic, then. No, no, not towing the party slash country line. All of which is a long-winded way of saying that Albert was a member of the USPD, uh, which is the Independent Socialist Party, but he had also become part of what was called the Spartacus League. And the Spartacus League was this underground socialist movement. Right. That sort of were anonymously printing pamphlets against the war effort. And this the, is punk rock time. Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is people chattering in the cellars, the beer cellars and the back corridors Speakeasies. Of, of Berlin. Yeah, yeah. And he signs up to this. In fact, he's one of the earliest members along with, I'm really terrible, as, as we've discussed, I'm really terrible with names, so I'm, I'm forgetting to remember all these people. We, we are drinking as well. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, so he signs up with these people and one of the things he's instructed to do is that when he gets back to Stuttgart... Oh, this is something I don't understand. So he was in the Freiburg army in right. Saxony, but he goes back to the Stuttgart barracks and he's charged with getting prepared for a revolution. So he has to go into the barracks, essentially desert from the army because it's not his army, but sort of blag his way into the barracks and find sympathetic ears to then get ready for revolution. Sounds like a, a charge they make up on the spot. Uh, what am I guilty of? You're going to start. You're trying to start a. Re- you know, you're going to get yeah. ready for a revolution. Yeah, that'll do. Yeah, yeah. put that on the document. <laughs> he's getting ready for sorry. He's revolution. Getting, he's, a, he's a very naughty boy. <laughs> <laughs> he's got lots of pamphlets. Yeah. What is this literature? Yeah. So he, he basically gonna get. So he goes to the barracks in Stuttgart and he's told to prepare the troops for war. Right. And a war against a war by the Germans against the Germans. Civil war. Civil war, revolution, revolutionary war. So, yeah, so, and that happens, November the 9th, 1918. I'm not quite sure, or I, don't, I actually know, no, there is, there, there's, a, there's a genesis of this. So essentially yeah. in, Germany knows it's losing the war effort and its admirals decide at the last minute to try and have one last hurrah and, just, and, and launch an attack on the Royal Naval Frigates. Right. Alfred, uh, and this is Heligoland, which you might hear it on the on the shipping forecast, <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, but yeah, so th- th- there's preparations to go and essentially have one last hurrah, and knowing full well that most of the the fleet are going to get destroyed, right? And the sailors rebel and they're arrested. They, they say there's no point. You know what? What is the point? So they're arrested, and it's, it causes a mini revolution. In Wilhel- Kiel and Wilhelmshaven, it is, right. in, in the northwest of Germany. And what happens is basically the local socialists demand the release of these sailors, and it happens. And then over a period of days, hundreds and thousands turn up. And this is seen as like a spark. It's seen as like, because people are talking about this, even though it's not like the internet and, and stuff. 
this news gets around incredibly fast to the point that how does it do that word of mouth i'm not entirely sure uh, i think sort of word of mouth printed material but in a very short period of time phones obviously i think in a very short period of time and i'm talking two or three days that word has got around across the whole of germany and people are preparing to have a unified insurrection on the right. on on the 9th of november so people were ready then essentially yeah. this is like everyone is a match head and yeah. one is sparked off and they they're all ready and in place yeah all it's, they it's all they need is is the green light yeah although like it's still a minority of people that are involved in these conversations because again it's highly treasonous because what they're talking about is overthrowing the monarchy right okay and the, and the, and the, it's the equivalent of us marching up to windsor in in yeah, taking the queen out. the queen, go, go off. <laughs> yeah. Bugger off. Bugger off, yeah. Okay. I, want, I want your nice Christy Palace. <laughs> and Legoland. So, a re- real revolution. A real fun. revolution, and it happens overnight on the 9th of November. I can't remember exactly why it's that day or what triggers that day. If you, if you start to look into German history, it's quite amusing that the 9th of November crops up a lot. Right. The reunification of Germany is the 9th of November. And we almost had Guy Fawkes. Guy Fawkes is uh, a few days before, yeah. Remember the fifth of November. Yeah. So what is it? It must be. It must be easier to oh, whisper I, when the yeah. when the night is drawing. Yeah, people just get pissed off with the darker days, don't they? They go right. We're going to do it now. <laughs> they won't see us coming. November's a shady, surreptitious time. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. It is interesting that that date comes up then. So, what is the? What do you think the prevalence of that date is? I think once it becomes a very significant date in a calendar it becomes something to pin on right like in america's independence day you know like you know there's such is such a cognitively present date in everything that it becomes easier to do something on a day that everyone remembers yeah i suppose it makes it easy to predict for like oh they're revolting again (laughs) yeah right yeah 3rd of november maybe we'll think about getting ready So, yeah, they're like, right, we've got Halloween out of the way, we've had our fun, now we get serious, and then we'll all be good for Christmas. <laughs> That's how it goes. Okay, so revolution is coming. November the 8th. 9th. 9th. <laughs> <laughs> then what? Uh, so in Stuttgart, where Albert is, there's a bloodless revolution. So it's the, it's the only one, and all the cities across Germany have the same thing. Yeah. Essentially, the, the soldiers or workers rise up usually a combination of the two, and overthrow the monarchies in those regions. Right. And take, seize power. They, right. they form governments in the space of 24 hours. Okay. Um, and it's usually a combination of the two different socialist parties. So in Stuttgart, or Baden-Württemberg, it's, they set up a free republic. The prince, who's also Wilhelm II, is basically marched from his palace and given safe passage to a family pile somewhere. But essentially, the symbolic seat of his power is taken over by the socialists. A red flag is raised. And they have their first government meeting that day. And there's a photograph of them all, including Albert, having their first government meeting on that day. And Do you have that? I do. It's that big one. No, it's that tiny one. Oh, the oh, tiny I have a big one, one somewhere. Half an hour. Right, now don't tell me which one Albert oh, is. Tell you. Far right. Far right. Got him. Oh, all right, so there's eight gentlemen here. Oh, they're all named. Lovely. So, yeah, they're, they're basically, I'm looking at a black and white picture of eight gentlemen. Some of them have really impressive beards, facial hair, some balding, 
There's some. Mm-hmm. There's some. There's a character at the back. It looks like he could be a, a hitman, some some sort of like mob assassin guy. Uh, anyway, but yeah, okay. So this is very much what you'd expect from from a photo of this period, isn't yeah. it? It's it's eight very serious men, uh, and a mix. Of, I black. think it's important to mention is a mix of old and young men. Right. Yeah. No, so okay. The old men are the status quo. They're the socialist party. The younger men. Like, yeah. So there's Arthur Crispian. I don't know who that one is. Uh, he's he's the one to the left of Schreiner. Yeah, and Albert, and so Albert's the minister of war. So he he because he was responsible for the soldiers, which was the the linchpin of that uprising. Right. He becomes the ministry of war, the Kriegsminister. So th- I like the fact that you said that there is a mixture of of ages here. Still all men. Still all men, unfortunately. This this bodes well for the wisdom, I, I, I guess, of of this group of, of men is that they obviously they respect the older guys and what they have to say, and the older guys know that, that these these things need to be implemented by younger men who are probably far more credible to the people than than these older. Yeah, chaps, I mean, they're, they're the old guard. So, right, the, the Albert and the others would have grown up studying the writings of these older people. But these these were all, although they. They're not necessarily academics. They all were very involved in the socialist movement. Right. They would have written a lot. So these were his rock stars. I think he, he very much looked up to them. Right. I think he was frustrated with them to some extent, particularly. That's interesting, though. That is because that's, that adds a level of he's not putting them above, he's not idolizing them, pedestaling them. It, yeah, it I means that he's, he's definitely young, very socialist. I think he's a young idealist. And right. so whilst he recognizes his roots and and the, the teachings of the people that have come before him, he's frustrated with the world he inhabits and wants to change it. Right. You know, and, and particularly having seen hundreds of thousands of people die for like a, essentially a conquest rather than looking at what's going on at home. Yeah. You know, that just underpins it even more, what was already there. You know, the, the war for me crystallizes everything that had been leading up to that point. Right. And he he had he always had these socialist ideals, but the war really set those into action and made it, you know, I suppose to some extent if he'd been shot in the face, he's got nothing to lose. I mean, obviously he's got he's recently got married, but you know, this is the genesis not only of who he becomes as a being, but also him making very important decisions that the world that his personal life is less important than the bigger picture. Right. So he's com- committed himself fully to the cause where where does where does that line then with with patriotism and nationalism there's that blurring again i guess isn't there well i think what all the socialists in germany want at this time is a better germany right and i think also they probably don't want the parochialism of the regions right because therein lies various inequalities essentially you know if berlin or hamburg or 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 Frankfurt, whatever, that's where all the money is, then that becomes the centres of wealth as well as the centres of poverty. Mm. You know, I think as a socialist, his, their ideals are probably that a unified Germany would be able to share those spoils more equally amongst the people. Right. And so here he is, he's having this picture with the people he looks up, his mentors, his, maybe his heroes. Uh, what year is this again, sorry? 1918. 1918. 
then where then where do we go and this is his you said minister of war right minister of war and now now where do we go eight days later he resigned oh because the 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 cabinet that he is part of are made up of the two different socialist factions and they can't see eye to eye right and this isn't just a stuttgart thing you can see it in berlin so i have to briefly explain what happens in berlin so on the 9th of November, also in Berlin, the, the Kaiser abdicates. So Kaiser Wilhelm II knows the revolution is coming. He abdicates. Right. Um, so he gives the throne. He concedes the throne to the state. Right. And Karl Liebknecht, who had recently been, who is ultra-socialist, you know, the independent socialist, he has recently been released from prison. He tries to sort of... They know that he's going to claim this as a victory for his party. Right. And by I say they, what I mean is the socialists in government, the, yeah. sort of the, the, the ones that cowtailed the Kaiser to this point. So they try and seize the opportunity to say this is their revolution, even yeah. though it really wasn't. And that's the start of these interfighting inter- between the two socialist parties. It, and it escalates in Berlin in December of that year. It's all, they fell out, in Stuttgart, they fall out really early, but I think that's more of an interpersonal thing. There's, there's a much bigger driving wedge that comes between them in December, which is this battle for power right. of the Reichstag, the, the seat of parliament in, in Berlin. Right. Because the, the seat of power in Berlin is the seat of power of Germany. I've been to the Reichstag. It's a beautiful building. I've not actually been in it. I'd like to have gone to the top, see the eagle, into the dome. Mm. So, so he's 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 resigned. He's resigned. But in the, the the broader picture is that what happens is that the there is a socialist government formed, but it's of these two factions that can't really see eye to eye. Right. And this kind of escalates into a massive falling out, and by falling out, I mean a, a civil civil war. Right. In Berlin, it's called it's, it's called the Berlin Skirmishes, but essentially it's a it's a military seize for power. Right. Between the, the the different factions and the police. Just before that, there is a sort of call. So. so the, co- the, idea, the word communist comes from the notion of communes, essentially these, these devolved centres of administration that are sort of, you know, politically, economically and socially part of a whole but independent and responsible for an area. Right. A bit like a town council, you might say. Right? Yeah. So the idea of communism comes from this idea of communes, this distributed equality with a central message that is devolved. And... One of the things that they were keen to do when the German Revolution happened was to set up these councils, so workers and soldiers councils throughout the country. So each area, rather than being controlled by a political body, was instead controlled by the people, the workers, i.e. the soldiers and the workers. Every area had their own like workers and soldiers councils. And Albert was what the leader of the social, the, the, sorry, the soldiers council in Stuttgart. Right. So there's a big meeting in December where some, a lot of these tensions are starting to build up between the different socialist factions. Um, so Albert goes up, I think probably filled with this sense of optimism about, because this is the starting point. You know, the revolution's happened, the dirty work's been done, now we lay the foundations for what happens next. Right. And it's, it's been organised in a way that gives the impression that actually everyone gets a say which is, as someone that works on a council level, probably realises the worst thing ever. But you know, <laughs> Doing things via committee. Meetings, yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's an opportunity for all the councils to get together, air their grievances, talk about the opportunities and, and make decisions. 
But it's a smokescreen. It's all essentially just for show. It, it really, there's a couple of guys behind the scenes that are running it uh, for their own gains. Um, not necessarily material gains, just their IDO political gains. That's, oh, what's his name? Ebert and Schneiderman, Schneiderman. Right. Uh, they, they're basically two people that seize power after the revolution and sort of like, ha, 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 we are, this is exactly what we wanted all along, but actually they were just sort of really canny, canny men that were just sort of waiting on power you know like waiting for their opportunity to seize power and this was it and it all comes up to it all comes to the fore with big skirmishes essentially when the revolution happened a lot of sailors were brought in to sort of militarily represent the socialist party the the leaders of the socialist movement feel that they're not necessary and they're actually a threat so they insist on them being cleared out of the city. There's fights ensue. And then, you know, socialists fighting socialists. It's just like, you know, as they always do. Right. <laughs> and then that, so that happens. And then the right, I try, it's very hard to unpick this without having to go into lots of detail. But essentially what happens is they have a massive falling out. And the falling out culminates in a seize of power from the, the mainline socialists, the sort of, the new Labour, let's say. The new right. Labour. <laughs> so obviously Blair didn't round up people and assassinate them, but, but that's essentially what they did. They, they, the the Fry Corps, which was essentially mercenaries that come back from the Western and Eastern fronts, unemployed but still armed, were appointed as a sort of a mercenary army right. to support the government and fight off insurrection. And they were given a lot of freedom to do what they felt needed to be done to control these are um, these insurgents right and Albert was one of these people that was seen as an insurgent so over the period of December to January a lot of the the people that have been fighting sort of driving the revolution and essentially sort of triggering it and, and seeing it through to its execution were rounded up right um, and arrested and Rosa Liebknecht and Karl looked Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebknecht who were essentially the the they were the figureheads of this this far left movement, right? The Spartacus League were assassinated, right? They were they were arrested and murdered by these uh, by these Freikorps, these these right wing mercenaries because they were right wing. They were a nationalist militia who were disgruntled with the loss of the monarchy and and also felt that they're essentially the the the, the revolution undermined Germany's ability to win the war. Right. That it was un it, w- it was unpatriotic. Okay. Does that make sense? Yes. And then and then what? So so that's that. So Albert's arrested. He's get I mean he gets sent to the military prison in Baden-Württemberg. So he is sent there without charge. He is at a meeting and they are rounded up by the, the police and well, not the police, the military, and sent to a military prison. So is he seen as like a, some sort of like enemy of the state or something? Exactly at this that. Point? Yeah. Exactly that. I and mean, you see it across Germany at this time that essentially these the people that have been responsible primarily for for leading the revolution months earlier yeah. were now seen as enemies of the state because they were barriers to the people that had consolidated power. Right. Okay. And so he's put into this sense of prison. Is it an internment camp? 
What's the... No, it's a, it's a military prison. Military very prison. Very big walls. Right. It, it's a cold, dark... Is it like a gulag? No, it's, I mean, it is a prison. Right. But it's a prison, as you would imagine, an early 20th century prison is. A tough old place. A tough old place with big walls, cold stone walls. And he's thrown in the jail. And they have a trial in July the following year. So he's there for six months. Right. And, he's, and they have a trial. One of the people he was arrested with was a very becomes a very prolific left-wing propaganda sort of agent like he, he's he's a sort of a left-wing murdoch almost he an agent becomes, provocateur is that, yeah is well that, no, but he he realizes that media can like like goebbels did for the nazis realizes right. that you can control the media if you can control media you can control the people mm-hmm. but he does it from a left-wing perspective so he spends most of his life essentially sending uh, requesting blank checks from Moscow to try and sort of brainwash the people. And right. Anyway, but the, the genesis... Well, what's Moscow's skin in this game? Well, this is later So that on. they can this take... Ju- but right. so, the, so this chap, Willy Munzenberg, who becomes a very significant figure later on in the story, he is arrested with Albert along with two others that are also quite significant. Um, and they're all sort of far left, left wing. So they're all round up, arrested. They are, but they have, when their trial happens in July, they're, they're seen as quite, the judges are quite sympathetic. You know, they, they argue quite articulately that, that, you know, they're being arrested for their beliefs rather than for their acts, right. which is a political prisoner then. And the, and the judges sympathize with that and release them. Wow. And so then he's, he's still in many people's eyes going to be an enemy of the state, but he's released. Right. Yeah, so he ends up back so in Stuttgart. It's a dangerous... Uh, they have to move around a lot. And right. The, so he goes back to the place he knows. He goes back to the place he knows, and that's when he has his first daughter, my grandmother. So he goes back to Stuttgart. He becomes... He sort of starts writing, because I think sort of... Although he's not a trained writer, for some, he does seem to be coveted for his writing. Right. Throughout his life. You know, there's something that people sort of call on him for. So he had an aptitude for it. Yeah, definitely. And I think he had a, a, a skill in writing, but also writing, I don't know if it's persuasive text or just articulate it's text probably, or accessible It's text. probably that he's had a diet of what seems like nothing but left-wing socialist propaganda for the, the past, how many years are we talking at this point? Five years? Yeah, five well, years? it's not early. I mean, like, yeah. Because, yeah he, well, from 15, so... Ten years, maybe. Yeah, if I'm getting my timeline right. Yeah, and he sort of ends up writing. So he writes. He becomes an editor for a newspaper, a sort of left wing newspaper. But he's also writing in his spare time and not so spare time, as well as having a child. So in 1920, this is. And how's the? Oh, I was going to say, how does he get a job when he's a former enemy of the state, but it's a left wing paper? So yeah. he's probably quite well respected, isn't he? There? Yeah, and I think sort of one thing you've got to bear in mind in the context as well is that the. Stuttgart is a very industrial city. So even though that there is a big party line and a centralised line, which is kind of anti the extreme left wing, mm. on the, the shop floor, i.e. The, work, the, work, the factory floors, um, there's still a lot of support for the, the more extreme left wing politics. Right. There's a sense that... The, that's their only hope, right? Yeah, exactly. And there's also a sense that the revolution promised a lot and, and although it got rid of the monarchy, it didn't really disrupt the. It didn't really touch the industrialists, you know, the right. capitalists that were profiting to the detriment of, of the working forces and people. So you know, there was a sense of unfinished business. I think. And I imagine he's gone away. He's done these things which are still impressive achievements. 
He's a little more worldly. He's been shot. Do you know what I mean? He probably looks a bit gnarly and tough. Mm. He comes back. But if he's in an industrial area, he's probably quite he's probably considered to be quite intelligent. He's probably one of the more intelligent. And I think he well, also I think he bridges minds. that as well. He bridges that gap between the intellectuals, the military, and the and the working. So the yeah, people. so the working because I, I can't imagine the education system for all the people that are on the factory floor in that era have been through a particularly great education system. So he must be quite impressive. At yeah, this point. It's sort of the boy that the boy that did good, isn't he? Right. Yeah. Uh, except for the the war thing, but yeah. Um, and I get yeah, but there is some you know people who can who can. Uh, distill intellectual arguments and ideas and thoughts into a layman. Yeah. I'd often do very, very well. But I think also, I mean, the other thing that's apparent is he's very highly thought of in the party, in this, in the sort of the political circles. So when he goes up to Berlin before for the council, he gets to meet Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebnich as a friend of Clara Zetkin, his old mentor, you know, he gets to meet all these very influential people, the people that really led the revolution and were supposed to be responsible for its aftermath. Right. He, and he's seen as a very significant, you know, so when, when he goes away from Berlin after this meeting, he's sent back to, sent back to Stuttgart and told that, you know, we need military leaders in all these areas in case it kicks off again. Right. You, we, and we need you to be that one in, in Stuttgart. It's interesting that for a man who's been shot and has seen so much atrocity and has been the, the head of the, you know, the war minister or head of, what was the, what was the term again? Kriegsminister. The war, right. Yeah, he's the minister of war. Minister of war. He still believes in military. You know, is that, that, that is interesting that, you know, I think I've seen think the it, worst of yeah, it. Yeah, he but, still needs. It's, he still sees its value or, or its worth. But I think also you you can't. What you have to think of at the time is that, or at this period, there's a massive class system involved in the military. Right. So a, a, a working class struggle isn't just in the factories; it's in the military. Right. And Germany, as well as having had conscription, also, and, and England the same, had you know. A huge amount of its working class populations see service at the Western Front and, and, and elsewhere. So it's although I think that they, they're prepared that there may need to be military action rather than so they're covering their asses. I think, that, yeah, I think they're covering their asses and also recognizing that with having just come out of a war, there are people that know how to do this shit. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's sort of the benefit of, you know, I was saying earlier that he was sort of a, a, a non-commissioned officer is that he straddles then that sort of the strategy side of military and, and the intellectual side of military. But also, ultimately, he's, he's a grunt who, who feeds and fixes machine guns. So he sort of has and, and has come from the factory floor. So he knows how to speak to the common man or what have you. So that's how it sounds. I know that sounds really patronizing, but essentially that's... But it's, it's, it's correct, though, isn't it? Yeah. So, yeah. And the, okay, so then then what? I guess this is what this is the thread for this well, podcast. Yeah, and then, then what? And then well, what so happened? The, and then what did he then, do? Then what? Can we have a timeout just for a bit? I need a pee. Absolutely. And a cigarette. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So here we are. Uh, Harry, this is a reference for you. We are in part two. <laughs> 
of um of infinite <laughs> part two of uh cole henley's ramble chat albert schneider schreiner 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 not schneider that's deuce bigelow male gigolo yeah <laughs> or schneider who is the guy in jaws who i always thought was schreider but apparently it's schneider schneider roy schneider there we go i see Right, so we got to 1920. 1920. So Albert has his first daughter, my grandmother, in 1920. Yeah. And he's working a lot in uh, newspapers, and, but he's also still quite a senior political figure in the local sort of far-left socialist movement. And he gets sent to Moscow in 1921. So he goes, as a representative of the German socialists, he goes to a congress in Moscow and meets Lenin. Right. So he it's an international council where of the international workers and soldiers councils, which is basically just Russia and Germany. You know, like it's seen as an international congress, but it's basically Russian congress with some Germans there. Right. And he write I found an article, a short article he wrote about he goes to this meeting and, and Lenin's there. Lenin at this point having this is 1921. Lenin had led the revolution 4 years earlier. But he's very ill now, you know, he's, very, he's struggling with his health a lot. He's had a few strokes. But he's also struggling with the fact that he doesn't know what happens next. And there's going, he knows there's going to be a power grab in Russia when, this, he, when he goes. Right. Uh, and just give me a, a brief refresher on Lenin. I know he is a huge figure in... So, yeah, um, so Lenin, I don't want to say communism and it be socialism. So, well, the, the, put me right here. The, in this context, they're kind of the same thing. So, Lenin was a massive, um, like, not only was a massive socialist, but he was massively involved in the socialist movement, the international socialist movement in the early 20th century. He's in exile from Russia during World War One, large parts of World War One. And returns sort of on the sly. I right. think he's in Poland, but I'm not, I'm not sure the specifics. And why is he exiled? He's an un- because he's un- just an unfavorable figure. You know, right. he's radical. He he keep, he's banging on about dramatic social reform. Right, and he has enough clout to be seen as an issue. Yeah, right. Yeah, uh, I think he is very much perceived as a threat. Right to the status quo. Got the status quo being the monarchy in 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 Russia at the time. Uh, so, is that an oligarchy? No, that's someone that owns football clubs. No, no, no you're not far off. <laughs> right. um, it's the same principle, a power grab, a change in power, people fight for the resources or control. And when, I mean, the oli- oli- I, I don't fully know, I know oligarchs own a lot of flats in Camden and, and a couple of football clubs, but generally it's what happened was the people in military and political power when, when, Russia reformed in 1989-1990, managed to start to own all of the state resources, right. like gas and oil and mines and stuff. And they used the wealth of that to then... It's called, like, 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 I say football club because there's a big thing about sport, sports washing or sports cleaning, where essentially you, you clean money by investing in foreign things. Like the, you know, like the, it, the Middle East countries do it a lot buy at Man City and the like and oh so they become fronts for yeah it's not it's not quite money laundering it's more reputation laundering right that they're trying to sort of build up their international image yeah rather uh, rather than just sitting in gold palaces and 
you know, the things that they fought against and then sort of become what they hated sort of things. Right. But yeah, so to go back to Lenin, Lenin was a, a very dangerous figure perceived. He was writing a lot. I mean, he was a Marxist, so he was writing a lot of interpretations of Karl Marx, who wrote the Communist Manifesto in, in the sort of mid-19th century, possibly later. I think it was the mid-19th century, along with Engels. So he was writing a lot about a modern interpretation, sort of a late, late 19th, early 20th century interpretation of communism and talking about the need for it, but also how they would how it could be realised, and one of which was obviously overthrowing the monarchy. So he was well-known and a, a sort of, as you said earlier, public enemy number one in Russia. Right. To the point that in 1917, he comes back to Russia and leads a revolution, and it's quite a bloody revolution. They overthrow the Tsar uh, and, his, and their family and, um, and seize power uh, uh, with the military. Russia, like all the countries in Europe at this time, uh, in the First World War, essentially were economically devastated by the cost of war. You know, it was, a, it was a war of attrition, not only in destroying landscapes and people, but also just destroying public purse. So there was a huge amount of poverty at home. Right. Like if you read about the Russian Revolution, the German Revolution, like the big slogan is peace and bread because people want peace because they want their soldiers back, but they want bread because they can't eat. Right. So, you know, like that becomes the mantra. And... Lenin seizes on this a year earlier than they did in Germany, pulls Russia out of the war, overthrows the monarchy, and leads essentially the first communist state. And he's very much, although he's seen as the political figurehead and Trotsky is seen as the military figurehead, they kind of work together. But then what happens is you end up with, when Lenin starts getting ill, this wrestle for power of his legacy. Who's going to control what happens next? And Lenin knows this and he's, he's terrified. And the, the one thing that's interesting is when you read about it is the one thing that he knew is that Stalin would be a terrible leader. Right. So he's worried, essentially, that he's created something that he unfortunately isn't then able to see through mm. to some sort of permanent or official end. Yeah. And he worries that he may have started the downfall, or he may have planted the seeds of something that may, once he's gone, become very ugly and something that he wouldn't want any part of. Yeah, and I think Lenin, above all, Lenin's an idealist. And so he has an idea about change and is, is very keen to execute that. But he doesn't really, and he has lots of ideas about what might follow, but he's not very good at thinking through the sort of unknowns. And, and what I think, so I wouldn't say he's not very good at it, but he just hadn't, I don't think he'd really factored in the realism and actually the day to day of how then what happens when you have power. Right. And we have to realise these ideas, but also circumnavigate demands and, and compromises as well, you know, because, you know, good leadership demands compromise. Right. Otherwise you become like a, a dogmatist, which obviously Stalin later became. And, that, and he knew that in Stalin. That, I think that he was very worried about the shift in power after he died. When he talks about Stalin, he talks about... This is, is this a man he knows personally, intimately? Stalin is very reads? senior in the, right. in, in the movement. In, in, right, uh, so he's not some figure that he no. reads about in, in leaflets and, there and papers. Se- there, and... There's essentially two camps that are around Lenin. Right. You know, so sort of whispering into his ear and stuff. Trotsky's on one of them, and then there's, the, there's, there's three guys, I can't remember their names, sorry. There's a triumvirate of, of, of people whispering into his other ear. Right. 
and he, on the one hand, he see, I think he sees balance in that because he's getting different opinions. And, and, you know, Lenin is a very intellectual guy. He knows that he needs to understand what's happening on both sides to, to make a decision. Right. But he knows also that in that triumvirate that are on one side, Stalin is the guy that's going to seize power if they get power. And that's going to become just an imbalance. I don't, I don't. I might be reading into this too much because of what happens afterwards. But there's definitely a sense in his in when you read about the history at this time that he is concerned mm-hmm. about what happens next, and particularly he's concerned about what happens next if Stalin is the one that that, that take, you know carries the the baton forward. Right. Um, so this is like yeah. So this is 1921. Albert's in Moscow and. He gets to meet Lenin for the first and only time, and he's read obviously read all his stuff. He's he, you know he he's in awe of this guy, and the first experience he writes about is actually being disappointed. Right, never so, meet your heroes. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. So he he's in a meeting. the The meeting's conducted because it's obviously in Russian, so they have an intermediary that communicates his message in German, and he he sits there and he's underwhelmed you know he's like where is this great figure you know you led a revolution in russia that revolution cascaded to us in germany we hung hung on every word of you and i'm sitting here and i'm expecting genius and and i'm not getting it do you you feel that he's he's pedestaled him and he's holding him to a standard that he probably possibly couldn't live up to because what albert is seeing is the cost what albert is seeing is the cost of of this journey, of this idea, of this dream, of this thing that they're working towards, he's seen the very real... I mean, he's been shot in the jaw himself. How how could someone possibly, who's been through what Albert's been through, find what he's looking for in a, yeah. in a single human being after after what he's been through? Well, the interesting thing then is he gets... So this is a, a, a reflection later in his life right. about this anecdote. And the, the interesting thing is that he he comes away disappointed from this meeting. He gets to meet the guy himself, you know. The, 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 and like you say, don't meet your heroes. This guy that is on a pedestal for him. Yeah. Probably literally as well, you know, there's statues of him everywhere. But yeah. he, he he's a guy that he looks up to. He expects every word that comes out of his mouth to be gold dust. Right. He goes back to his hotel room, crestfallen, disappointed. Okay. And then what they did is because... Well, because they were very organised, they translated all the all the meeting notes that were transcribed, and then translated into the various languages of the people present. So, in his hotel room, he receives the documents that day of the meeting that he was in. Very efficient. Very efficient. Yeah, and he digests it and realises, and he, he basically calls himself an idiot. He just like. How stupid was I? You know, I was expecting these words of greatness and they were right in front of me. And the problem he found was that he was he was confusing... He was expecting him to be very intellectual and use very complex language. Right. And what he wasn't expecting was him to communicate very effectively in simple terms. Right. So actually what he was saying was like, you know... The, I can't remember the gist of it, but essentially the punchline to this like anecdote and this memory was that you know he learned a lot from that encounter because he was expecting great things, and he kind of got it, but he didn't actually recognise it at the time because he right. was expecting the greatness to be through the delivery, right, rather than the message. And the message actually was very clear, 
and very simple. Yeah. And go sort of mentioned about Albert's writing. I think he learned a lot from that because what we find is that he's his writing becomes treasured in the Socialist Party when he goes back to Germany because and I think a big part of that is him learning about how to communicate, how to simplify your message. Right. How to be it's like it's not dumbing down, but it's about tropes and learning how to communicate in a way that sticks in people's minds. Yeah. And also finding the broadest audience. Yeah. Because it's in your, it's, it's not in his interest to appeal to the the intelli- what's the word intelligentsia. Is it intelligentsia? Yeah, yeah. You know, or the yeah, or the really intellectual elites. Yeah. Because that doesn't And there's a big problem in German socialist movement at the time is that it is predominantly led by academics and writers and and like you say, the intelligentsia. So these are people that are essentially controlling the message, but also in, almost incapable of communicating it right. in, in, in ways that could be understood by the very people that they're trying to save. Right. You know, it's, it's all very, almost from a position of privilege that they're trying to have a revolution right. when, in fact, the people they need to execute that, they can't communicate with. So this is why people like Albert become really important. And do you think Albert is looking, is looking also looking for... Like I said earlier about he under, he's seen the cost of, of these dreams, of these ideas, and getting trying to get somewhere. Do you think he's also looking within S- Stalin to hear something which... Lenin. Uh, Lenin, sorry, sorry. Which which tells him that everything he's done was worth it? Yeah, I think so. I, I, I think validates this, I, his... I think, like, also, like, you know, with any revolution, the rev- a revolution is not about... A revolution obviously is about change, but it's only ever a start. And so you can have lots of great ideas and you can execute to a point, but there's always going to be an unknown if it works, you know. And I think sort of that's a real challenge. I think there's a degree that Albert would have wanted to know not only what had happened in Russia, because they had a one-year head start, but also what their plans were going forward. Because, you know, there's, there's, there's an idea which is fundamental and dramatic change but then there's the the execution of that idea once it's happened is that right. you know like you've got to then not you've got to marry up local politics with factories with keeping the churches happy keeping the the factory owners happy but also the factory workers happy with education and healthcare and things like that you know there's it's you have to please everyone and you can't do that everyone. and then and also <laughs> you know if your starting point is an ideology that is about economic disparity but you're massively dependent on the wealthiest for the taxes that are going to help you realize this idea you've got to be you know that's a real eye-opener what happens when you get into that position and particularly i mean because politics corrupt people and you know you you are having to talk to people that don't want change because they've made they've made their life and their livelihood out of the status quo Mm. And they're still in positions of power, as m- most of the people in government were at that time. And, and they maybe have no vested interest in yeah. that changing. They've they've essentially become career pol- politicians at this point, right? Yeah, so and they're you, only and looking you, out for their own. You definitely see this with the Socialist Party in Berlin, where there's people that are sort of not wanted revolution, benefited a lot from it, claimed the victory afterwards, and then not really want to do a lot with it once they've got it. Right. So it was more about. Well, do you think they, those are people that are perhaps seeking some sort of glory or to become folklore yeah, I think heroes? A big, massive part of ego in there. I right. Mean, there's also, it's a power thing. 
it's right. a it's a bunch of guys, and they are always guys yeah. who are who who want the power and yeah. the control. And once they get it, they don't want to let go of it. Power corrupts. Yeah, absolutely. And so he's he's been in the he's had an audience, I guess, with not Stalin, Lenin, the other one, uh, the other one, and uh, which is a good one, but maybe the less bad one. <laughs> He goes away to his, his hotel. He receives these transcripts. Yeah. He digests them. He has his epiphany. Yeah, and he comes, I think he comes back to Germany re-energized. And also, he's he's established connections in Moscow. So Moscow right. recognised that at this point, there's a communist party that's formed in in Germany, which is primarily the independent socialists that were established before in the Spartacus League merged to form the Communist Party. There's still some sort of people that are in both and some in one and not the other and stuff. But generally, the Communist Party forms in Germany. Right. And that's ideologically aligned with the Communist Party in Russia. Right. So the, so the, point the, the enemy saying, of my enemy is my... No, that's not right. That's not well, no, point. I think it's sort of having a... Sh- it's like a distant cousin. Right. Lots of distance. You know, like, and, and also, it's having a distant cousin that has all the best toys. So you know, like, you know, you're expecting the the hand-me-down playstations and the skateboards that they grow out of, sort of thing. Yeah, oh, gross oversimplification, but hopefully you get the metaphor. <laughs> yeah, and so he's come back. He's come back re-energized. Um, he's got a bit more clout, yeah. and he and he's probably feeling quite. He's probably feeling validated in what he he's setting out to do, and he's probably feeling confident and backed. And yeah, it's a solidarity. Yeah, like, there's a solidarity. He has fe- he's found people, although he'd had them in Germany, he's found almost a nation of them that actually share his beliefs and ideals. Right. And I don't think he's stupid. I think he recognizes that there are problems with how Russia's executed this idea. But uh, essentially, like you said, you know, my enemy's enemy is my friend. You know, but more than that, it's a sort of people that I'm ideologically aligned with. Where you know. I'm disagreeing on certain things, but ultimately I want them in my corner. Right, yeah. And then what? What's What year are we in now? We're so this in... is still, like, this is 1921. So 1921. 1921, he becomes an editor and he moves to, I think, the Ruhr. So the Ruhr is a western border of Germany that borders with France. Now, the Ruhr has always been a bit of a political hotspot. Right. Uh, partly, is this because it's so close to, th- to France? And they... Partly, yeah. Partly right. because it's very rich in minerals and right. timber. So it becomes this sort of land grab for resources, coal, I think, in particular. Um, so it becomes this context where there's so, people trying to control the resources in the area. Now, I'm going to say, I've said this a lot already, and I'm going to say it a lot again. In the, for the purpose of context, at the end of World War I, Germany lost, you know, like Germany lost World War I. It had to sign the Treaty of Versailles, which essentially conceded responsibility. So even though it hadn't started the war, Austro-Hungary had. Right. Um, they said, look, you've lost. Now you have to say it was our fault. It was, yeah. Take the heat, take the rap. You turned, you turned it up to 11, you take the rap for it. Okay, you know, like, yeah. And which they kind of did. Yeah. And so uh, there, as part of the Treaty of Versailles, Germany had to concede to a number of things, one of which was the dissolution of its army, which as quite a, a proudly military nation was a big ego. Yeah, that's, that's what's the word for that? They've been neutered. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, good word. So they've been neutered by this, but also one of the things is they had to pay. So they had to pay financially 
like the other countries that have won. So France, England, everyone, and particularly the countries that have, they had attacked. This is fucking mean. This is domination. Yeah, it's it's humbling. Yeah, it's a massive humbling. It's a prop. There's a they're getting a spanking for this. Yeah, aren't they? and and it's a massive economic spanking as well because what happens ultimately by 1921 is Germany can't afford to pay. You know, because as well as having to deal with the economic cost of having fought a war that they lost. Yeah. Which they got, they got massively into debt doing. Do, yeah, they're now having to pay what money they don't have to the, the countries that won. Right, and, and what happens is that in I think it's 1921, they basically they default, they miss a few payments. Right, and and part of this is due to political struggles in Berlin that they can't quite. Is there is there cash being withheld? There's cash withheld, but there's also a lot of political conflict on who controls that cash and where it goes. Right, okay. And there's essentially, basically what happens is France gets pissed off, it, miss, it doesn't get its money, it takes part of Germany. So it invades Germany, basically. Just annexes a part it of it. It just annexes the Ruhr. They, 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 the soldiers come in, Right. To t- start taking out the coal. They go, right, we're going to have this, this coal. This, yeah. is gonna, this, will pay you, this will pay you off. Yeah, basically. so they're expecting right. payment in kind. Now, unfortunately, the Ruhr... Is, is a very, it's one of these hotbeds of the socialist movement. It's one of these very red centres, along with Stuttgart and... Red meaning... Um, Leipzig, like very, very left-wing. Right. So you've got like Berlin, Leipzig, Chemnitz, Stuttgart, the Ruhr, Hamburg. These are, these are all like very strong left-wing centres, mostly right. because they're very industrial. Right. And what happens is like just the workers get pissed off. So they start having their own little revolution. And, and so you've got like the Germans fighting the Germans, fighting the French. Albert's an editor at this point, and he's just like, yeah, I'm just going like, to just talk about this and, and, and publish it and stuff like that. Yeah. So he's there for a while. It's quashed, and I might be getting my years mixed up, apologies, but essentially what happens is that the German government send in the German army, which are mostly right-wing, pissed-off people, that that they lost the war and and they basically massacre hundreds of these these socialist workers who still are have got rifles and stuff and it becomes a real like bloodbath but also a really like symbolic moment in the struggle right for who owns the left wing revolution in in Germany so Albert's writing a lot about this and there's a sense that another revolution's coming and also the difference now is that Russia wants to control it. Russia wants to have people on the ground in, inform and determine and dictate the German revolution. And the Germans that are up for revolution need Russia because they're the ones that are going to be bringing in the weaponry and the, the finances to help fund that. So Albert gets involved then with... the He gets sent to Moscow again, but this time it's sent to a military school to prepare for revolution. Right. So he becomes this sort of essentially this military leader that's there to get trained to then become an insurgent in his own country. So he does that in 1923. So, so this this means he's a, we would call that an extremist. Wouldn't we? Yeah. A radical. He's rad, has he been radicalized? Been radicalized like by Ben Kenobi. Right. <laughs> So is this is this akin to someone flying out to Afghanistan to an ISIS camp? I'm not, I'm not sure if it is because I mean, a it's his own country, right? Yeah, you know, like he's he's not going to fight another war. It's his war, right? I mean, and he personally, you know, he fought for his country 
He he worked hard, extremely hard, and not forgetting throughout this period, he's he goes back to prison several times. He he goes on hunger strike for for six weeks or something because he's constantly being in prison for his beliefs, and he keeps arguing right. this like this is. You're imprisoning me because of my beliefs, not because of my actions. And, and every time he's released, but then he gets him back again. So this is why this is why this has happened. Well, he's pissed off. Yeah. Well, he's been ground down and yeah. victimized by the by the powers that be. And he and he sees the impotence in the powers that right. be. You know, like he, and he this definitely... just hardens his resolve. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so like he keeps he... getting put in fucking prison for what he believes in. And yeah. this is, it, we'll see this in history and other people, is that when they finally become these, these like, they've got, you know, they've, they've, when they've become radicalised or whatever, or they've committed mm. to, to, to properly fighting, there's probably always a theme of, you know, them being su- uh, suppressed yeah, in some way. a bit tangent, but I studied, I studied history at GCC, and I was very fortunate I went to a Catholic school in the middle of England that studied the... The Irish problem, the, right. the, the Irish troubles, but from an Irish perspective, and this was in an English curriculum, but right. it was, the, the curriculum was just un, like, let's do the Irish troubles. Yeah. But because it was a Catholic school, it was like, let's look at it from the Irish perspective. That absolutely blew my mind. Right. Because bearing in mind at this time, the troubles were still happening. You know, the Good Friday Agreement was six years away. Right. I mean, that, that's, that's, but that touches into your point, you know, like this is someone that's been ground down and, everyone that believes what he believes in are being persecuted for their beliefs. Right. And, and it's doubly galling, like I said, because the people in power got into power because of the actions of him and his friends and yeah. his colleagues. And the, so, you know, he's, as I started this conversation, he's a patriot. He yeah. wants a better Germany, but he knows that they're not getting it at the moment. And he's seeing political abuse. Like, you know, like, right. So there's two ways these people go, isn't it? You either get broken, which is what they want. They want to break your will, mm. make you and, and make you submit, or you go the other way. You become hardened. You become callous. Yeah. And he's gone that way. He's gone callous, hasn't he? And I his, think there's. I mean, what happens during this time as well is because he's had two daughters. So I think there's a degree of wanting. To, I think they are quite influential because then suddenly it becomes not just an idea, it becomes about a future. His, right. That's an interesting aspect as well, because he could either, he, that could be what breaks him, mm. because he could think, I need to be around for these daughters, I need to, to safeguard them in the future, blah, blah, blah. But on the flip side, from, a, from a, a personal and family point of view, actually, he spends a lot of the time in his daughter's upbringing, right. in prison, fight, going off fighting wars, you know, like, so... It's got, and I don't know if this is a generational thing, but you know his ideology, I think, is purely I need to get the best future for my children. Right. But it's also by not being here, by fighting, <laughs> by fighting this cause for them. You know, mm. and I can recognise that. You know, like I went into when I had a child, our first child, I kind of went into a bit of caveman mode. You know, my work, my job is to provide. I must go out and earn money. Yeah. And there's like it seems like. A contradiction that you want to be that you want to do the best for your children by not being there but actually what you're trying to do is provide as comfortable an environment for them as possible yeah and i, I totally know what you mean not that i've been there yeah. but i, I can but, guarantee that for that albert sorry emma and the two daughters sonia and helga didn't have a very comfortable upbringing they were moving around a lot they right. had the police kicking down the doors a lot is there is there evidence in their writings or any correspondence that they sort of they're like sick of it. Oh God, I wish Dad would just. Well, they were drop quite young, and, and I think sort of 
they by the time they left Germany, I mean they left Germany when they were early teenage. So, right. and also like like I said earlier, like the thing Germany is a very patriarchal society. So, the, the, you know, children have their place. Right. I think there's like a very strong discipline view in. And I, it sounds like a great generalization, but I, I, my so they're like, do not question your father. Yeah, I think right. so. I think so. Certainly, either at this time or certainly in this family, you know, fathers doing what fathers doing, right? And it and it was influential. You know, my grand went on to be a labour councillor for like forty years, so you know, obviously, it stuck. Um, yeah, yeah. There's an influence there. And so, right, so where are we now? We are uh, in 1922, coming on to 1923. So 1923 is interesting because what happens is because of his communication with Moscow, there's a decision made in Moscow that there is going to be a revolution in Germany. They're basically telling Germany that they are going to have a revolution and they're helping them. They're sending rifles over and stuff like that. And they're, they're providing a lot of the... The intelligence and the groundwork and the communication to get the, to make this happen. Right. And so centres are placed around Germany, little cells, yeah. to use your analogy earlier, like, so little cells are set up around Germany ready for this to happen. Right. And Albert's in Hamburg. He's, he's, Albert, Hamburg's one of these very staunch left-wing areas, particularly because it's got docks, you know, it's, there's a big socialist uh, workers' sort of movement around all the shipping and stuff like that. So he's sent there to, there's an area called the Wasserkant, the, the water side, basically, I think. So he's sent there as, as essentially a leader, a military leader for the revolution that's yet to happen. Right. What, what follows is really interesting. So essentially, they are on the cusp of revolution. They've they decided a day, they've decided a moment, they're waiting for that, that signal. And then something, they're basically, it triggers too early. There's something happens, I think, in Hamburg, not Hamburg, in one of the Bavarian countries. And it's like not really related to this, but it seizes the government's attention. And they're like, oh shit, you know, like if we do it now, it's not the right time. Something's happened. We need to stop, put the brakes on. Right. So memos are sent out and they get to everywhere but Hamburg. And for some reason, Hamburg doesn't get the memo. So right. the day and the moment that they're supposed literally to Literally doesn't get the memo. Literally doesn't get the memo. Right. So they actually have a revolution without realising the rest oh. of the country isn't following suit. Shit. And the two leaders of that are Albert and Ernst Thalmann, who later becomes a very senior political figure in the Communist Party in Germany. Is that potential sabotage there? Is there a conspiracy? I think, I, I don't know. Or just I don't know. that it's fucking chaos and it's clandestine. And yeah, it's, I, don't, I don't know. I think, I think there's just the potential that it didn't get through. I think there's the potential that the person responsible for getting that message through just didn't, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know right. why it... Essentially what happened was it was called off at the last minute. Hamburg is the one place that it didn't get called off. So they don't, they don't yeah. So and, it's and like... Al- um, Hamburg's the one place that Albert is. Right, okay. <laughs> and it happens. So they have a revolution. And it, they get, basically after about three or four days, it, it's suppressed. Right. Because it's not happening around the rest of the country. And they eventually, they just realise that they're, you know, they're, they're fighting a losing battle. Right. At this point, he goes into hiding... And it, it, what kind of role was he going to have in this revolution? He's a military leader, so he's he's been trained at military schools in Russia. Right. Mm. So he's very. So he's going to be he's going to be involved with some very violent decisions. Yeah, and it's not a. I mean, there are casualties. It's not a massively bloody revolution. Right. It's mostly like 
seizing the police stations and 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 controlling the telephone lines sort right. of thing. And and they do that quite easily because the police, whilst armed, aren't interested in armed battles. Right. You know, they they as soon as they've got like three guys with guns turned up, they're like, Yeah, right, yeah, you want the key? Yeah. You know, and it's not a massively bloody revolution, but what it does is it stirs it becomes urban warfare essentially. What happens is that they there's a very socialist area in Hamburg and there's some very iconic pictures like the because it's cobbled streets, they, they ended up building all these like barriers with the cobbles from the streets. And, it, and it's very iconic. I mean, although they lost, it became a very iconic event in German socialist history, particularly in East Germany. There's a lot of reference back to it as a sort of a sort of, not a missed opportunity, but almost like, you know, the sort of thing people write songs about and sing about. Right, it becomes a, a folklore thing. Yeah, exactly. Right. So, so he's, he stands, he, he's telling his men, stand down, we've they've blown their load too early yeah yeah right i didn't want to really use that analogy but there you go they they've premature and now they've they've almost been caught with their pants they turned down. up to an orgy and realized it was a one man <laughs> yeah <laughs> they they basically have to because he's a wanted man now because he has led a revolution here and it's failed so he's a wanted man He's a domestic terrorist. Yeah, basically. Right. So I think this is when they end up in Berlin. Right. So they... Is that because it's close to a border? Or no, is it because it's, Berlin I mean, will have a stronger... Berlin's got always been seen as red Berlin. Like, it's the place where all the socialists are. Right. Like, certainly not the intellect... More the intellectual socialists than the, like, the sort of the factory floor socialists. But right. it's, it's basically... Because sort of, it's a city. And it's also the capital of Germany. Yeah, you yeah. Know, like, so it's like definitely the sort of the... The center of politics, but also the center of this sort of ideo political movement. The intelligentsia. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, so he gets to somehow, that could have been an epic journey in itself, couldn't it? He gets yeah. to Berlin on the run, where he finds refuge with his, his cohorts, his I guess. Camera, comrades. Or, comrades, yeah. uh, or people who are sympathetic to his cause. Where do we go then? Where are we now? 1923, 4? Yeah, 23, 24. So, like I said earlier, he was co-leading the uprising in Hamburg with Ernst Thalmann. Right. Ernst Thalmann becomes quite a senior political figure in the Communist Party in Berlin. What you cannot do, and we've not really touched on this yet, right. is you cannot divorce what's happening with the left wing in Germany at this time with what's happening with the right wing. Right. So at the same time that Hamburg's having an uprising on the left, Hitler is trying to sort of start an uprising on the right down right. in Bavaria, which is the sort of the more sort of right-wing part of Germany. Bavaria is also quite a wealthy part of Germany, isn't it? Is that right? I don't really know a great deal about Bavaria, except they have really good beer. Yeah. Um, and a beautiful landscape. And a beautiful landscape, yeah. Yeah. The hills, what are like? Oh, that's Austria, <laughs> isn't it? So, yeah, so, I mean, so Tarman becomes this almost... Because of this failed uprising, Tarman, who is... I would say he's a very charismatic guy, but he's a guy that wants to be at the top. Not 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 as in not like a Boris Johnson aspirational leader. He wants to be a figurehead and lead and drive things forward. Right. So he, like Lenin was, is an idealist, you know, and and he's wanting to push the movement forward. At the same time, Hitler's trying to do the same with the right wing movement and recognizing that he can only there's, he has a lot of support in Bavaria. You know, he has a lot of Christian, traditional 
pissed off Germans that lost the war and and pissed off that they lost the monarchy and you know like very patriotic but the like nationalist rather than patriotist sort of thing yeah and he's getting a massive audience down there and but he knows for well that he can't get any momentum without seizing the sort of political landscape in Berlin so it's around this time that he sends Goebbels up Goebbels is sort of his media man. He's the Dominic Cummings sort of thing. <laughs> He's the man that controls the image and the message. Yeah. Um, so he gets so Goebbels gets sent up to Berlin purely because he knows it. He calls it the Red City that he needs to sort of get a stranglehold here if they've got any chance of political success. So the next few years, what unfolds is basically this wrestle for power between the communists and the right wing sort of well they weren't they weren't i can't remember what they were called before they were the nazis or either the national socialist party they were something else and i can't remember the name but so, yeah, there was this, it became these so they had to rebrand a few times yeah, till they yeah. got it um, i, I don't well, want to like, say they got example, it right but they did get it they got it right well no it was all about the message and it, like for example the, na- the nazi me is is like a sort of a, a shortening of national socialismus which is just national socialist. And that right. message was introduced purely to appeal to the socialists, the disenfranchised socialists. Right. The Nazis were never a socialist party, but they knew that if they could control the message, that they would sign up a lot of socialists. Right. It's, 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 it's smoke and mirrors. So cunning. Yeah. Fake news, man. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so Goebbels is sent up basically to cause to stir up a hornet's nest. And he, he, he's, he basically set that up with a load of bother boys. So what happens is they, they identify all the places that the communists are having meetings. And then they go and have meetings. They, they basically just turn up with loads of, sort of, they weren't really fascists at this time, but loads of people that don't like communists and start fighting them. They literally just have barroom brawls and to try and just sow dissent and disarray. And really, like, because there's no doubting as well that Hitler was threatened by the communists. He he thought they genuinely presented a threat to what his aspirations were. Right. And so he knew that there had to be like a in the pubs battlefield where they, we, we sort of sow dissent and try and disrupt them. Right. But what you ended up with is this escalation between the left and the right. So in the landscape of what was. I mean, there's a broader political and economic story here where essentially Germany's economically shafted. We've had the Great Depression come, like coming through the 20s and into the 30s. And that's just, you know, that happened to all countries around the world. It's the ripples of the First World War. But in Germany, because of the reparations, it's amplified right. massively. And you see these pictures in, of like, you know, they're almost they're using like thousand mark notes for like wallpaper and, and yeah yeah like yeah between two slices of Warburton sort of thing like yeah. just to, just to keep the kids tummies full and the yeah so you get this so there's a broader economic tension and all the every time you get these sort of this amplification of left and right wing it's always down to economic prop you know people are looking for a solution because there's a problem and that problem is usually economics. Right, and and this is what happens in Germany. Like you know, it is the casebook of what happens. Right, and so you get the people moving to the left, the people moving to the right. Those two clash. What you end up starting is that they don't become just political parties. That you get military wings, paramilitary wings of right. these parties. So the Germans had the Sturmarbeitelung, which is the SA, which is sort of used to be the military leaders, and then got basically massacred when Hitler got power. In the, the was it the night of the long daggers or something like that? 
Oh, is this when they they uh, they? Oh, this, yeah, I know what you're saying. They uh, basically overnight murdered. Yeah, and they the, set fire to the Reichstag. Is that right? No, no. Oh, I'll come on to that. That's, right. That's when Hitler seizes power in 1933. But uh, but essentially after seizing power, he, all the people that had helped him get into power from the, in the Sturmarbeitelung, which were the, essentially the, the stormtroopers of the of the Nazi Party, the milit the paramilitary front of the of the Nazi political party. Right. A lot of those were massacred in a control in a seize of power. Right. By Hermann Goering and Goebbels and Hitler and stuff. But yeah, so what you end up with these two extreme these two extreme parties, and each party starts to get this paramilitary wing, which is partly about confrontation, like starting fights, but it's also about protecting them. So you would have marches, and if there was a communist march in Berlin, they knew they would get attacked by national socialists. So right. they start to have these paramilitary parties purely to protect them. Right. But then what ended up happening is the paramilitary parties became almost the thing that people were signing up to. Right. And, and so you start to see these this, this sort of... What's the word? This tokenization of military, you know, like it becomes this very symbolic thing that you get people marching around Berlin armed in military uniform, and each of them had their own uniforms. And there's a book there on the Rote Front Kumpfbund, right. <laughs> which is the, the Red Front. So there, Albert becomes the military leader of the Red Front, which, along with... Ernst Tarman and Willy Liao become like that military front of the socialist movement in, in Berlin, which essentially, if you're a military leader in Berlin, you're the military leader of Germany. Right. The Rotfront Kumpferbund, or RFB, is very interesting because that is the origin of the fist salute that, you know, it cascades through the Spanish Civil War and now into, like, obviously the Black Lives Matter movement and the Black Panthers. So yep. this symbol of the raised fist starts yep. in Berlin in 1924. With your great-grandfather? Well, I don't think he started it, but yeah, like he's part of this movement. That he's the he is, you say he's the head. He's, he's the yeah, head and of, I've got. You say he's the head of this thing. At he's the, time. the he's the military leader. So right. here's a book from Berlin on the history of the Rotter Front Kumpferbund from 1924 to 1929. Right, and it's it's, it's a funny book because it's like there's a section on musical instruments of the Socialist Party from 1924 <laughs> to 1929. Would you not agree that's a nice horn? It is a lovely horn. Yeah, very good, yeah. So, but you've also got some really interesting photographs in the time. So there's pictures of the military uniform and, and the symbols that they use. So the, we start to see the raised fist becoming a real right. left-wing symbol. Excellent. And that's, this is where it starts. But we also get to start to see some interesting photography. And, and, and like I said earlier, you know, when you get these extreme political moments in history, the control of the media becomes all important. And this is the first big political movement that has seized photography as a way of spreading that message right so you both on left and right wing we start to see a massive control of the use of photography so it's trailblazers yeah exactly and it's also about you know you start to actually see doctoring of photo photographs so you start oh. to see people being able to control the consumption of and assuming it's real and actually it's not right and that's something that Stalin did to perfection later in life when he, you know, he would literally erase people that he'd erased physically from, from historic photographs. Right. So I've got a photo here. And in fact, I might have a larger version somewhere here, but let me just read that. So what we're seeing here is a, is a march in Berlin. Now, this is uh -huh. in 1927. And we're seeing a march of 
hundreds of thousands of people in the supporting this movement. And uh-huh. I'm not exaggerating. Hundreds of thousands of people. We've seen. We've all seen the Nazi sort of Nuremberg rallies, but mm-hmm. the left were doing very similar things. This looks like the uh, the shot when when the president is sworn in. Yeah, this looks very what, much the one like, where not Trump's one. Not Trump's <laughs> one where there was more people showed up than yeah. ever before. No, yeah, but this is very reminiscent. There's flag bearers here. They're, they're, yeah, it's all about symbolism. Yeah, um, this is more of a show of power, isn't it? And here, a... the th- uh, at the very front of this column, because mm. it is a military column, we have three people. We have Willie Lear, who's the secretary, Ernst Tarman, who's the sort of token leader, yeah. and Albert, who is the, the military So here's leader. your great-grandfather. Yeah, so he's the front... He, he is the, in the top hierarchy of this huge military, paramilitary organisation... Badass. In Berlin. And so there's lots of infighting, lots of fighting, rather, in Berlin. And actually what, what we find is that the arrival of the Nazis kind of almost causes a consolidation of the left. Right. That, you know, realising, as you said earlier, my enemy's enemy is my friend. We yeah. see a lot of people move towards the Communist Party in Berlin. Admittedly, it's like saying that we can't extrapolate what happens in London from the rest of the country. Right. So this is just Berlin, you know, this isn't really telling us what's happening in the rest of the country, but it becomes a fulcrum and a, and a real hot spot for this, this tension and this conflict. Right. And kind of the, this ownership of the future, because unfortunately, after the revolution in 1918, it can't, the, it's not that the revolution didn't work, but it never got a chance to work out what it was going to do next, partly because of external factors like the, the war credits and stuff. Um, so... It's, there's essentially this huge political vacuum waiting to be filled. Right. And as we are seeing... And they're aware of this? Hmm? Are they aware of this? Yeah, I think there's a, definitely a sense that there is an opportunity and that Germany's at a fork in the road. It's right. going to go in one direction. It's not going to go down the middle anymore. Okay. You know, it's not going to go down like a... It, it, it is basically going to go to one extreme or the other. Right. And so, unfortunately, uh, I, there is, as with all, as we've said, with all left-wing organisations, lots of infighting. So, although there's a lot of draw of power towards the communist movement from the other socialist and trade union parties in Berlin, what ultimately ends up happening, uh, though, is there's a lot of corruption. Right. And from what I can gather, and I don't know if this is me sort of trying to put my grandfather, great-grandfather in a positive light, yeah, but he fall, he falls out with the party leaders because there is corruption going on, and he tries to raise it, and he's he's basically told to leave or or suck it up, right? And so he leaves, and this is around 1927. Of course, he's going to leave. He's just he's done multiple prison spells of them trying to. Well, I don't know, right? So okay, so he just seems like a man of principle. Yes, but this is this is a very grey area, and, right? And so what happens next is. Because not only this instance, but there's a broader issue of corruption in the Communist Party. By now, Ernst Tallman is the leader of the Communist Party and his secretary embezzles money out of the party and he tries to cover up for him. So not only is there an instance of corruption within the, the, the paramilitary wing of the political party, but the political party itself is sort of in a bit of disarray. Right. And there's a general sense as well that with the rise of the Nazi party, that this isn't just about a left-right struggle. This is about what happens in Germany. So there's a sense within a lot of the socialists in Germany that Je- Russia is trying to be a puppet master. And in, in the sort of cow to Russia, they are actually losing sight of what's happening on the ground. 
and particularly around anti-Semitism. And that becomes a real problem because the massive economic repercussions of World War One and the Depression are, as we always see, an economic downturn starts to cause... Everyone looks to blame someone. Right. And in Germany, it becomes the Jews. And that's something that uh, Goebbels and Hitler really... You know, I don't think it's, a, it's an opportunist thing. You know, you can see in his early writings that Hitler had a, a massive dislike for Jews. But you start to see them using that as a... Weaponising that. Um, right. Starting to use that Within as a their message. propaganda. Exactly, exactly. Right. And, you know, like starting to say, well, you know, if you're looking... If you're looking for someone to blame for this, then you look no further than these people. Right. This is when we started seeing the propaganda. It was becoming caricatures, wasn't it? They were starting to stereotype the yeah, Jews. Yeah, very much so, very much so. So, you know, the, the, and there was a lot of, you know, print and photography and media that was it was about controlling a narrative and using very specific and exaggerated characters to try and sort of support the message and the, the message was essentially that you know we're not the problem here's a problem it's external to us let us help control that yeah and so yeah so you get at this point you get a rise in right-wing ideas a large part of that right-wing ideology revolving around anti-semitism but on the left what you end up with is this sort of fraction with some people feeling like we need russia and some people feeling like, actually, no, we're missing... Germany is losing its soul here, like, a bit. It sounds a bit pretentious, but it essentially it's the, it is people that were involved in the struggle from the start and said, like, you know, we've, we're so obsessed with the battle, we've forgotten what we're fighting for, sort of thing. Right. So a couple of guys that Albert used to know from Stuttgart, oh, I can't remember the names, Brandler and Talheimer, I think, they set up this opposition party called the KPDO, so the, the Communist Opposition Party. So it's basically a communist party for communists, but not the Communist Party. You know, right. It's, like, it's the, the, uh, the, the alternative independence again, isn't exactly, it? Exactly, yeah. people's front of Judea. Yeah. But, but essentially they were saying, like, you know, we kind, of un, we kind of align with the Communist Party, we kind of got the same goals. But however, this isn't an international struggle, this is a German struggle, and we need to focus on some of the problems on the ground. So it's a nationalist... Uh, movement. I, I wouldn't say a nationalist. I think sort of it's it's nationally focused. Nationalism. I, I wouldn't say it's nationalist because nationalism is a very loaded term. Right. Nationalism implies insularity and inward looking. And I would say actually the the socialists that are, have a national outlook are very outward looking. They're, you know right. they're looking to international cooperation and stuff. Okay. But they're but they're certainly in this context they're they're recognizing that. It's not a glo- there are struggles that aren't global that have to be addressed, and the main one is the is the Nazi party yeah and the, the, I think they're worried considerably worried that unless they try and stem Hitler and Goebbels and the messages that they're delivering, they're going to lose they're going to not only lose power they're going to lose Germany. Right. And so what happens in 1927, I think, six, 26 or 27, this party is formed and Albert joins up. Now, there's two conflicting views of this and I have never got to the bottom of it and I don't know how I'm ever going to. One of which is that Albert, out of principle, stormed out of the Communist Party and aligned with people that he had started, been involved in the revolution in Stuttgart with. 
Right. Particularly Brandler. He he went to prison with Brandler in 1919. Oh, so they are tight. They have history. Yeah. yeah. So that's one view, and that's the sort of message that comes across when he talks about this period in his history, is that he he basically he saw corruption, he saw an opportunity, and he also was frustrated with the lack of tackling a very genuine problem, which is anti-Semitism, and he moved to this other party. So that's one I quite like, you know, like that sounds like a good guy. Yeah, yeah. The, the, other, the other sort of narrative is that, and this, this comes from archives in Moscow, is that he was an infiltrator. He was, si- he was basically signed up to infiltrate this other communist party and keep an eye on them. Oh, so he's a mole now. Yeah, well, we don't know. And, right. And the thing is, so like, there are archives in Russia that mention this, and historian, German historians have, have proposed this, but then I've also spoken to German historians that discredit that. Right. Why would they... What, what's the discredit there? Well, the discredit is because anything in the, in the Russian archives is very politically controlled. Right. So there, there is a narrative behind everything that's written in there. I see. So... There's a, yeah, so they're either saving face because he left the party. Was it don't let the truth get in the way of a good story? Yeah, probably. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I don't know. And like, you know, I, like, like I've, I think I said to you before, you know, I'm, I'm an invested observer, but I'm trying to be an observer. I'm yeah. trying to look at it objectively. I'm trying yeah. to try and understand this, mostly from the human story, partly from the family story, but also... Even from a historical point of view, I'm trying not to let my personal feelings cloud what happens. Yeah. But this is definitely a period in time which ultimately we will never know. There are two, there are two conflicting records that say, that say, say what happened at this moment in time. So when it comes to telling this story, you know, I have a gut feeling, but I know that that gut feeling is clouded by my own personal... Bias. Yeah. Bias, yeah. yeah. I know that, yeah. What's your gut feeling? I think my gut feeling is he wasn't a mole. Really? Because yeah. my my feeling is if I was going to send a mole into somewhere, I'm going to take the guy who's like Albert, who's been to prison multiple times and yeah. not broken for but, his yeah. principles, been shot, can talk his way out of multiple political situations, isn't isn't um, unfamiliar with violence. I don't know, he just seems like the perfect yeah. fucking dude. There's um There's definitely a case that like, so one of the arguments, apart from personal investment in him not being a mole, is during his time in, the, in this sort of opposition party, he writes a lot for them. He becomes the editor of their newspaper, Gergen Dinstrom. Denstrom. So he writes a lot for them. He becomes an editor. He writes a lot of articles. And the articles are very... I mean, I've only briefly been able to translate into German, but... You know, they are very... Some of the earliest writings about the dangers of anti-Semitism in, in Germany with the Nazi party. You know, he... The, so the, And there is the potential that he's essentially... He's gone to a party that he likes, but he is working for someone else. You know, I think partly I do, also with writing and talk, telling this narrative, I'm just worried about it being too complicated. Right. <laughs> as if it's not already. Yeah. And there are definitely arguments about why there's definitely arguments about why he probably was a mole so he leaves the party he has to leave germany he ends up sort of ousted from the party and then the party by the party i mean (coughs) the russian communist party who are notoriously bad at forgiving and quite 
brutal with yeah. people that turn their back on them, he's then allowed in at a later date. So that's that's the one argument I think that suggests that he he is not it's not quite as clear cut what's going right. on. But he's right. Ambiguous. But, yeah, it's quite ambiguous. And during this time in the KPDO, cool. Communist Part, Communist de Deutsch, Communistisch Deutsch Partei Opposition brackets. <laughs> right. He he is a very prolific and he writes a lot and he edits like i said their newspaper and ultimately though it's kind of futile because what we happened in 1933 is the reichstag fire so this is what you were mentioning earlier what happens is and we still don't no one still knows for certain what happened the the, the nazi story is a grumpy communist sets fire to the reichstag building weak and there are articles from the day about... The, and there was a big thing with Gustav Regler and Willy Munzenberg, who I mentioned earlier, wrote this book explaining how that was impossible or how there was, like, back at... You know, corridors of power between the Nazis' center, center stronghold and the Reichstag that they, they could have sort of set off incendiaries and stuff like that. So right. uh, it, was, it was a political show, likely. Um, but, it, but the ultimate gist of it was that Hitler... Who had so at this point? Sorry, I mean a bit of context again. Hitler was now Chancellor of Germany. There'd been an election, but he didn't get. He got a political minority, so he was sort of a figurehead of a government that he was in the minority of. Right, and it was a deal he did with. Oh, what was his face? Bismarck. So Bismarck had become like this figurehead. Of, Isn't the Bismarck a, uh, a ship? Yeah. A ship now. So named yes, after but him? it was named after... He was the sort of leader of the army in the First World War, and right. he became this sort of political, this sort of reluctant but sort of old political figure, mostly symbolic after after World War One. And he basically conceded some power to, to Hitler. And what happened was basically when the Reichstag fire happened, Hitler explained that there needs to be a consolidation of power, that he was a bit of a... You know, he was his, his hands were tied just being chancellor and that he was able to basically fudge an election so that you weren't allowed to vote for anyone else or right. you weren't allowed, certainly weren't allowed to vote for the communists and it was a seat i mean like you, you know that's a, gro- a gross oversimplification but the bottom line was he seized power and overnight all the so all the communists had to leave germany right so this is 1933 so it was literally they, the, the second he sees power, he was knocking on the doors of people he saw as enemy of the states and rounded them up. Right. Um, so there was a lot of shit we've got to get out of here. And a lot of the communists did. I mean, so Albert left, was it like April, I think, 1933, to Paris. And the family stayed behind because they, they're kind of safe. They're not, they're, they're not as seen as like a threat. So they're, they're, they're kind of safe for the time being, but they later follow. Um, and Albert becomes a... He teams up again with Willy Munzenberg, who I just mentioned, who was the guy who was arrested within 1918. Right. Um, and they write together. And, like, you know, Munzenberg is this guy that is just getting bankrolled from Moscow to spread the communist message. And he, he puts it all into challenging the Nazis. So he writes books, and I've got some here. So these are books that were published. These are reprints, but these were books that were published by Albert, well, written by Albert, then published by Willy Munzenberg whilst he was in Paris. Uh, now I'm not I I don't really read German. Oh, but this, yeah, are, this says Hitler's at the bottom, right? Well, they were published. I'm not copied. They were published in England and uh, in, sorry, English, English and French as well. So right. we've got von von Totalen Krieg zu Totalen Niederlage 
Hitler's. So it's basically just saying that, like, you know, Hitler's preparing for total war. Hitler tribes from Krieg. These are all basically saying... These are warnings. These are warnings. This is 1933, so this is six years before World War Two. Yeah. And he is telling the world, Yeah. I know what Hitler's up to. Yeah. And it's also... that. Because, because of Albert's connections with the socialist movement and that socialist movement being situated in factories, yeah. he knows what's going on. He knows that they are massive... Even though Germany at this time isn't still allowed to have a military presence or an army or a navy or an air force, um, he knows that they are... That a lot of the sort of factories are starting to build armaments. A lot of the... You know, he knows that although there's widespread infrastructure projects to build autobahns, he knows that that's for mobilising troops. It's not to make it sort of easier for cars to get across Germany. Right. This is, yeah, this is for traversing the Germany quickly and efficiently. Yeah. And on and en masse. Yeah, exactly. So, he, so he, and actually, this is one of the few times I find Albert mentioned, certainly in English language historical stuff, is, is a sense of alarm in some of how much he got, like how much he knew. There was obviously people on the ground in Germany whilst he was in Paris sending, you know, not, not just information, but like data. You know, what is the production capacity of this factory on this Right, day? okay, like, yeah. You know, what, 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 what is the land, you know. Um, and there are, and there's, I won't troll through those books now, but there are, there are pictures of factories and things like that, and exactly what they're producing, when and where. So this is, and he'll know what sort of quantities and the time frame that they can yeah. produce these quantities. So he, and, in. and he's he's suggesting in these books that these are this is Hitler preparing for global domination. This is this, this is mind blowing. Mm. Your great grandfather is blowing the whistle on Adolf Hitler. Yeah, six in, years before World War. II. Six years in multiple volumes. Yeah, and these published were published published in multiple languages. Multiple languages. Yeah. No one's talking about these. No. Why are they? Why are they? I don't, I don't know if no one knows, or I don't know if anyone. Do you mean? Well, someone knows. Someone yeah, yeah. had to translate it. Four well, or five yeah. Times. And I think, like you know, like I said earlier, you know, if you go into any Waterstones, you'll get ninety-five books right. in German history on the Nazis, yeah. and five books on the, the other periods of human history. Yeah. Unfortunately, people find the Nazis more interesting, and right. but also, we. I mean, part of the story I'm trying to tell is is that. People saw this coming, people knew about it, and people were ignored. Yeah, they, I think a lot of the time the narrative is that suddenly, oh my God, what oh is God, Germany doing? Oh shit. Oh, they're in Poland. Well, it's, but it's not. Yeah. We had, um, who, was, who was our prime minister at the time? Chamberlain. Chamberlain. He went over and had meetings with Hitler, didn't he? They were yeah, almost I, seen as, as really, he had nice things to say about him when he came back, I think. Yeah, I think, I think, I think you know, I don't think they were necessarily ideologically aligned, but no. they were, there was definitely a sense that, well, it, I mean, for all his flaws, of which there are many, Hitler was a very charismatic and persuasive person. He wouldn't have got into the position he did. Yeah. Without being, I just, I just, I just thought that is mind blowing. That sat in front of me are two volumes of books from six years prior to World War Bloody Two, from your great grandfather and his friend Willie, Willie uh, Munzenberg, Willie Munzenberg, Munzenberg, whistleblowing. Yeah, and they're, but, they're on the right side of history. I think, yeah, exactly. And you, but you've got to recognise that there's an element that they were part of a broader organisation that was the wrong side of history. But also you've got to recognise that no one listened because everyone had their own problems. The whole globe was in a recession. Yeah, and that is the thing. I can't remember what the, what the, the term for it is, is that, but we've, we've talked about this 
before and in council meetings and things like that is that you know people aren't going to care about climate change and the existential threats if they can't feed their kids if they can't feed their kids if they're the majority 80% of their existence is figuring out how they're going to keep the roof over their head they're not thinking about recycling plastic they're not thinking about any anything ecological because they it becomes their first priority so that makes complete sense on a global scale you have to be a person in a position of immense privilege to care about the planet it's the bottom line you know ideologically we could all care about it but you know you have to be there has to be not just a a, a sustenance but a a buffer to be able to afford to think about the bigger picture right and and the context the context of that is that you know you can write all you like about the threat of Hitler yeah but if no one reads it and no one cares and and, and, they're distracted with their own survival I think think also yeah and and they were you know you're what these guys in a basement in Paris were doing were competing with a media machine with, you know, Goebbels ran a really slick international messaging system. You know, messaging as in brands, not as in, like, yeah. SMS or anything. So, you know, they they, they were sweating in, in basements on typewriters. And, they, yeah, they got books printed out of them, but essentially, that you know, that book was... Those books were only as valuable as who they could get them to and read them. And, yeah. uh, and, and again, the, the main problem with left, the left-wing, not left-wing politics, but, you know, this comes back to what we were talking about earlier about social bubbles and, and echo chambers, is that, you know, it's fine communicating this to people that already know. It's the people that don't know that you've got to try and get that message to. Yeah. And, and it's very challenging. And so they've written these, these texts warning the world of of this rising i don't know what to call him a super villain i don't know yeah well i mean it, you know this this james but it's but far beyond james bond villain yeah well they've gone into a stage now where they recognize that you know part of the reason they were sort of turn, not turning their back on moscow but trying to shift their focus is there's a massive danger of what's happening in germany and having left germany they've a got the early warning system they know what Hitler's capable of because they've had to escape it. Yeah. You know, they've had to leave the country. And the only reason they've left the country is for fear of their lies. Yeah. We know that Hitler at this very early stage was already executing people that were not aligned politically. And that's people in his own party as well. Yeah. And so, you know, there's a massive fear there. But there's also a fear that this isn't just now, to flip the story from earlier, this isn't just a German problem. This is an international problem. Right. And France will be the first that gets hit. Yeah. as it always is but this will hit you know america england as we well as we know what follows as we know uh and so where do they go from from here so well what year are we in now so 19... he comes to paris in 33 and starts 33. writing the rest of the family follow later that year in 1935 my gran comes to england as a refugee so she's studying in french schools but her i think I think compulsory education stops at 15 in France, or it did then, certainly. And they were fear... She she was a very bright girl, woman, young woman. And I think they were quite fearful of the loss of her education. And also, I think there was definitely a sense that things are going to get worse before they get better. So through Willie Wunderberg, and actually this is quite interesting, I found correspondence from members of the British Labour Party with Willie Wunderberg about about his not necessarily about my grandmother 
but that I know that they were communicating and those people that he was communicating with were responsible for my grandmother coming to England. So they, she was basically helped by the Labour Party through the Red Cross to come into England. And what's fascinating is she ended up becoming a Labour councillor for like 40 odd years sort of thing. So, you know, I think there was like a debt owed or something like that. Or, right. or just a, you know, like she was driven by her politics and her, and her upbringing. Right. The rest of the family stayed in Paris. And then in 1936, the Spanish Civil War started. So, do you know much about the Spanish Civil War? I may know, no, I'm not off the top of my head. I can't yeah, recall. But if you mention things, things yeah. may come come to me. So because I've seen quite a few of these, like World War Two in color, and these really lengthy documentaries. I've binged them, but but there is like like today, like this subject, there's so much information mm. to take on board, so many moving parts, so many moving parts that it's almost impossible to understand in one concise thought, mm. isn't it? Um, so I may know a bit more than I think I do, but but you know, carry on. I, I I still struggle because it's so much is going on and there's so much... You know, if you think Germany has a lot of infighting in politics, Spain take it, takes it up a notch, you know. like right. it's, And we can sit, we can definitely in this context and particularly knowing now what what happened for afterwards, we can see what happens in Spain as a like a canopy for World War II. Right. It's where the, the left and the right extremes... And by that I mean Moscow against Germany and Italy flex their muscles on a on a new, on a third party playground. Is this on. Mussolini or we predate? No, this is Mussolini. Mussol- right. uh, Mussolini. So Mussolini seizes power like Hitler in 1933. I think it might have been a year earlier. He, Hitler was definitely inspired by Mussolini, right? And it wasn't. I think mean, Mussolini didn't really seize power. He just sort of kind of took an opportunity, but then made that opportunity his own. But yeah, we definitely see in Spain that. Moscow versus Italy and Germany. And then like the, the, there's almost like a sort of a, a little subplot where the Spanish people are fighting and various international people get involved. But it's also becomes, as well as a testing point, it becomes a testing point for international involvement. So it's, it's kind of Hitler testing his muscles for what he can get away with before other people get involved. Right, I see. So he knows that like... The, a, this is an opportunity to test new military tactics and new military weapons that he's been building on the sly in Germany. So we start to see the, the Luftwaffe and tank, German tanks uh, arriving in Spain. The, the Luftwaffe is the Air Force, right? Yeah, sorry, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's the, the, the German Air Force, which theoretically they shouldn't have had. And they suddenly they arrive in, in Spain dropping bombs and, and, and practicing blitz warfare, right? which they hadn't really done up until that point. Um, but it's also, Hitler is really playing a charm game he's trying to see what he can get away with before england and america sorry britain but basically england yeah england america france what they do how 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 much can he get away with before they start twitching right and the result is he can go all the way you know churchill didn't want to get involved he he didn't particularly like the Spanish people anyway. <laughs> like right. he's, he's quite vocal about that in his letters, bordering racist. Like he's not interested. He sees more problems at home. And actually, like the fundamental, his fundamental argument is that he's more terrified of the Russians getting a, a, a foothold in Europe yeah. than he is about the fascists getting Spain. Right. The French do kind of what they do for the rest of that period, which is just sort of 
try not to get involved in anything, you know, see yeah. how it pans out. You know, they're sort of casually just sitting back, smokers of shit hand, waiting to see what unfolds. <laughs> and America, America's got its own problems. It's the, it's the Great Depression. So right. they're really not wanting to get involved in an international And they're war. quite far away. They are quite far away. It's not it hasn't an immediate... stopped them before, and it won't stop. It hasn't stopped. No, since, no, but but, but it's not. Uh, it's not on their doorstep. No, and I think also you got. I mean, when who would they have had then? I can't remember. I can't even remember if it's a left or a right wing government. They certainly had a lot of economic problems at home, but I think they were definitely trying not to get involved. I mean, so yeah, so Albert in Paris, nineteen thirty-six. What happens in Spain is. The monarchy's deposed. Uh, essentially, there's a, a republic's formed by a government. Uh, the monarchy's deposed, and the military, led by what well, I can't remember his name. There's one guy that led the military, supported by Franco. Right. Don't like it. They're the military. They're royalists. They really want to basically overthrow the revolution, have a counter-revolution. Right? right. So they do. They try and do that, and then. Albert, along with the, the several other communists, think this is a massive problem. Right. So they go to they they basically go to set up a, a battalion in Spain of German, not refugees, emigres. You know, like people that have had to for, leave Germany by force to essentially sta- help stand up against the counter revolution in Spain. And right. this becomes the start of what is later known as the International Brigade. So people. People from socialist movements around the world come into Spain to support the rev- the original revolution, like the revolution against the monarchy. Right, and it's, it gets really confusing. It's so, you mean as well as just the different factions? There's the factions within factions. So, for example, eventually, what happens is you get this formalization of the international brigades, of which Albert becomes one of the founding leaders of. Dude's an overachiever, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, he's a bastard. Uh, so yeah, he he becomes the along with this guy called Hans Beimler, who's fascinating. He he escaped a, a, a Nazi concentration camp by strangling a guard with a shoelace or something, and then <laughs> taking his uniform. So he becomes a bit of a hero, anyway. Dude. So these two guys basically set up this first German battalion in Spain in August 1936. I just thinking now, I wouldn't be able to do that because no, no one's outfit's going to fit me. Yeah, yeah. I have to wait for the. And also, you'll be the first to go. Like, you easy, think? easy target. <laughs> Just go for the big man. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Um, they'd, either, they'd either see me as a threat and bump me off straight away, or I'm good, I'm good for the work. Yeah, but, true. But yeah, we digress, yeah. So yeah, so basically then what unfolds is three years of fighting in Spain. Right. The international brigades become more pronounced, so by, by which you end up getting actually country-based battalions because one of the problems in the early days was that you had all these people coming from abroad from different countries to help support the effort the war so these like mercenaries or are they are they more they're workers they're basically like they're trade unionists and workers and socialists from these different countries that read about this and kind of either recognize the threat or just feel like i I read something recently which is about because there's been a few books in english about the spanish civil war lately talking about this sort of sense of not having fought for what they believe in, you know, because we had the First World War, obviously, until 1918. And certainly in England, and, and also by extension, Scotland and Wales, and then also Ireland, you had quite strong left-wing movements that had sort of been disenfranchised by the First World War, and particularly in Ireland, sort of hung out, hung out to dry. 
I'm really up for a fight, but realising they didn't really have the resources or support to have that fight domestically. So when an opportunity came to fight internationally, fight for the, like, the same cause, but in, in another country, right. that's, that's something they want to do, which is exactly like the analogy you had earlier about people going to Afghanistan and, and Syria. Right. You know, it's a very similar thing. You know, there's a cause, people have felt a cause internationally for a belief system, they're going abroad illegally, most of them, and then, you know, fighting for that cause. The big problem they had in the early days of the revolution, of the of the, the Spanish Civil War is that they would just bung everyone into one battalion. So you would right. have, like, Russian, Hungarian, Polish, Spanish, French, English, American... And obviously, no one could communicate. Yeah, I was going to say that doesn't do bode well for tactics and organisation. No, and you you ended up with lots of struggles, and also certain characteristics emerged about the different kinds of people, like uh, the different the different countries they came from. In the later years, you actually got a lot more formalised. So you would have na- like named battalions or brigades, and they were named after socialist heroes from home. So you had like the the most famous was the Abraham Lincoln. Brigade, which was mostly African Americans coming over to fight, you had, and that, that's Abraham Lincoln because he emancipated the. Yeah, he's seen but, as a figurehead of like the left wing movement in America, right? You know, and so yeah, you had this, but then also there was lots of infighting. So you had again this sort of people going, "Oh no, I'm the left wing party. No, I'm the left wing party. No, I'm the left wing." Yeah. So you had like things like so George Orwell famously went to fight in Spain. He wrote. Uh, Fantastic book called Homage to Catalonia. Uh, I've heard Christopher Hitchens talk about this actually. He's, yeah. he's he was a staunch Orwellian, I guess you would say. Yeah. He's a, always a really interesting character, and it, it really. I mean, this is where like, he he was a socialist to his core, but he was very anti-communist, and most of that was from his experiences in Spain. Um, right? Did because, he do some time in India? Is it Cal? Yeah, well, he was—he grew up there, I think. Right. Well, but he was he, no, no he, did he grow up there? No, I think he was in the army there. But you're right, yeah. He and he came from sort of well-to-do stock, right? I mean, I could go off on a tangent with what little I know about all, but he's fascinating, fascinating. You know, he went to masquerade as a tramp in 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 Paris for six months just to see how the other heart, you know, like what what it's like to live on the streets and. <laughs> Uh, well, and, and that was fine, but then he wrote about it, and people were like, "Why would I want to read about this?" And actually, it becomes it's iconic. It's like it's you know, it's observational journalism, right. which didn't really exist then in, to that extent. Um, but anyway, Just, like, he, that's amazing. Yeah, that's another conversation. He he, he went over to so he felt the calling, went over to Spain, and signed up with Poom, which was like a it was basically a Marxist but not communist sort of party. And you, it's the tragedy of Spain is that as well as the, the ultimate victory of the fascists, mostly because they have superior weaponry and organisation and, and tactics, ultimately the left was just crippled by infighting. Right. Most, and most of that was Russia. Like actually Russia deciding that it was, it was going to be the one true left-wing party in, in Spain to the point that it started executing other left-wing parties because they were... You know, you know, so um, doing their enemy's job for them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. And they're becoming extremely paranoid at this point. Right. And this is a period of time as well that Albert ha- is there in a capacity that has strong relations with Russia. So this is where I get, like, not only... I, this is a period that I haven't researched a great deal because I'm sort of trying to consolidate the earlier story before moving on to this. Yeah. But it's, a, it's, a, it's an area where the politics become very grey, but I can also see it being very muddy on both sides. Like, there are accounts in the Russian archives 
of them describing Albert as like not a very good leader and not very good with the troops. And I'm thinking, yeah, but he's been at war for 20 years at this point. You know, like I could see maybe this is the start of him getting disillusioned with things. Mm -hmm. That, you know, he's, you know, he's had to leave his home country. And how old is he at that point? So in 1936, he would be... Oh, my mental arithmetic is terrible. He was born in 1892. That's eight plus 36. It's 44, mid 40s, my age. He's getting too old for that shit. Well, definitely, I could see it. I can empathize. <laughs> so, yeah, so at this point, he's, you know, like, and, and, uh, although he's sort of in the front line and the military leader in the very early parts of the Spanish campaigns, he gets sent back to Albacete, which is like the sort of the Moscow's base in Spain. Right. So the, the, the focus of the left-wing movement in Spain is predominantly Barcelona, and he's definitely spending a lot of time in the early years in Barcelona. Right. But he gets sent almost to, like, the back line. Yeah. And it, I've never quite understood this, whether it's seen as, like, almost like a punishment or whether it's actually protecting. just... Protecting. Well, not protecting, but recognising... Because like, what, what he ends up doing is becoming a historian, which is what he does for the rest of his life. So he's, right. he, he ends up being charged with running a historical division... It's like, why would you have a historical division in an armed conflict? But yeah, that, that, I don't know, if, and I don't know if that's a propaganda thing or or if it's just like history is important type thing. So, what's the job of the historical division to document it? He's trying to write not only a history of the war right. or an account of the war as it's happening, but also trying to understand the historical what's historically happened in Spain forever. Like you know, like he's literally writing a history of Spain. Okay. Is this because they believe they're going to win, and when they do, they're going to have I to genuinely preserve know. its national identity? <laughs> I don't know. Wow. I don't know. And I, don't, I really don't know. And it could be like... Maybe he these... was a mole when they gave him this, like, fake, yeah. cushy job. Well, exactly. and... it's, it sounds like one of the, it could be one of those cloak and dagger sort of fake organisations. Right. The historical division. Like, yeah. You know, like... like... He's in, the, in there with the Morse code every day. Tap, 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 tap. It's like in... Um... Ministry of Magic or something like he's got like got sneak in via toilets or something. <laughs> yeah. So and so right. So he's but he's being he's given an, a desk job basically, isn't he? Yeah. I mean, he's also training though. Like the other thing is that I think Albuquerque is seen as this. And apologies to any Spanish listeners about my pronunciation again. So it becomes a training centre for people that are sent over to Spain or or come over to Spain before they have they see action. So there's a military training element there, but then also it's an administrative centre. So he's partly involved in the military training of like officers and stuff, but because of his history... So I think at this point he's seen as a bit more of a teacher than a doer. Right. Which happens to all of us. Right. Age, well, he's got know. to this age where uh, he's probably more valuable to them alive with the wisdom, his mm. experience, his his history with leading men. Mm. And let's, let's be honest, at this point, we could probably assume that he is that natural leader that we were talking about earlier because, yet again, he's been put into another I think, position. I think, he's of... like, I think he's a good prag- practical leader. Yeah. I, don't th- I think what the, what he, the reason, the barriers to him in the Communist Party is he's not a charismatic leader. Right. Like, I think there's definitely instances where, like, and I, I, I can't believe I didn't show you this earlier. So one of, the, one of the photos I got when I went to Berlin for the first time, they said, oh, here's some photos we found in the archive of your great-grandfather. Blah, right. Blah, blah, blah. So here's a nice picture of him, like, in 1919, I think, with, and that's his wife, Emma. Nice moustache there. And stuff yeah. like that. So we're looking at a, basically a group in 1919, 1920 of a bunch of socialists, almost like 
It's almost like they've come round for Sunday. Like, yeah, it looks like a tea. dinner party and they've kind of yeah, huddled for a picture. There's a, there's, a, there's a smile on his face, which I think is one of the few photos I've got of him with a smile on his face. Right. So it looks like they're having a bit of fun and, you know, like they're obviously just chatting a lot and but having a few drinks or something like that. Yeah. But this was the other photo they showed me. And this is a photo from Stuttgart in 1918. So I'm jumping around a bit, but I want to explain in the context of what we were just talking yeah. about. So Albert's in that picture. I'm not asking you to look through every single... We're Hitler's getting, we're in here. a picture of a crowd. Is Hitler in here? No. This is uh, Stuttgart in 1918. Oh, right. Because there's a famous picture that looks a lot like this of lots of soldiers in a crowd mm. all gathering around at some sort of podium there and is there's one of Hitler in there that he might have been there but I don't right. think he was okay. I, think, I think he probably would have stayed clear of Stuttgart sorry I thought you were leading me down to that anyway that like, so, so I was showing this picture and I was like great it's a big crowd like how on earth am I supposed to find my great grandfather in there and he said he's the one giving the talk yeah <laughs> yeah how did I know that I just looked at him straight as I asked him yeah so uh, on a podium like in John, front of thousands of soldiers he's delivering a speech right which so, which goes against your your idea of being a pragmatic leader and not well a i think but, but that's but you've got to remember as well that's the context of that is a military right context so that he's an officer speaking to his it's men. expected of him yeah right but which is a, very different from a political leader yeah and i think that throughout his career he sort of he skirts around political leadership and becomes very familiar and friendly with political leaders but he's never seen as a political leader and and I I say that's important because for someone to assume leadership within a political party they are chosen they need to have a drive to do it but ultimately they have to be chosen by their peers or someone else Mm. and and I think for him it's an appointed role isn't it yeah and I think for him that never like I don't I don't know whether he either never desired it Mm. or felt that he would be safer without it Right. Or that he just never was seen as the right candidate. And it may be that he never wanted to. You know, he he might have, you know, if you think about the periods in his time that he became a leader, they were all around the military. Right. They were all around, like, an assumed leadership role as an officer, as a as a military leader, as a figurehead of a of particular movement. But mm. never as a political leader. He was a, a political writer, but never... I think your answer... Will will lie within his writings. Mm. Shame he wrote in German, eh? Yeah. If he, if he, I think that the, the. So what I'm trying to say is, if he is self mythologizing within his writing, you could probably assume and lean on the side of a charismatic. Well, it's, the difficulty and if there. If he's not, then it's more probably. So the difficulty there is most of the writing that survives is from his time in East Germany. Right. And all writing was was monitored, censored, and observed. Right. So he would never have been able to publish an honest account well, in, in his later years, which is, okay. comes back to the very genesis of this conversation, which is that ultimately he asked my uncle to write his story because he knew he would never be able to or had never been able to. And I think... That's... that's way more powerful after four hours of discussion now hearing that moment yeah. when he sits there and he and he goes yeah, that's that's like that's a crazy moment yeah, yeah. that's a, that's like that was an important it was a bit, detail. A, a bit of baggage to handle yeah <laughs> yeah but that's that's a great because it, it because when you first hear that you kind of think well 
old man deathbed. Uh, yeah, and is it like, is it an ego thing? But no, it's not. It's just that for his entire life, everything he's done has been someone else has tried to change the narrative, mm. skewer it, tried to kill him. And he, or then, and then when he was finally kind of, I guess you would say, free in living out his years in, I guess what you'd call sort of peacetime, hmm. he couldn't fucking tell his story then properly. No, and it was, and, and it, everything was controlled either by Moscow or the state. So he became a historian, and then later a lead, like a, a a senior figure in the historical museum of Berlin. Right. Everything had to have a message. All the stories, and the the bitterness for Albert was that. So, for example, with the, the Hamburg uprising and then the Rotfunk Kumpferbund, is that it was un, what the communists and, and most left-wing organisations are very good at is idolatry. You know, find an individual, celebrate them, worship them, make them the figureheads. And the, Iconoclastic. Uh, exactly. And this is, like, you know, like, without going off on too much of a tangent, I can see this is where the problem with Corbyn lay, is that he became this sort of iconic figure. And irrespective of his faults or otherwise, you know, it's very impo impossible to live up to those expectations. And one of Albert's frustrations with with running history department and lecturing, teaching, and very much teaching the history that he was a part of, you know, he was a modern historian technically, was that he wasn't in the history books. And I don't think that's an egotistical thing. I think that was a sort of a truth thing. Like there's, there's someone's someone in Bristol actually has written a, a PhD on Germans, the Germans' involvement in the Spanish Civil War, but also the the folk memory of that in later Germany, particularly East Germany. Wow! And she mentions Albert quite a few times in her PhD. And one of the things that, that sticks in my mind is a footnote talking about he was right. He was constantly writing to sort of seek some kind of recognition because he was never recognised for his role in the Spanish Civil War. Right. But the people he went there, like with Hans Beimler, for example, were celebrated. And he was like, yeah, but I didn't get shot, so somehow I'm not important. Right. <laughs> you know, right? Because he wasn't a martyr, yeah. he wasn't celebrated. And and you, you, might, you might also be able to take the the idea that you know if you're if you've got a history if you've got a history book that doesn't have you in it and you know how important you were to it and that's a real that's a real issue for truth isn't it yeah I, if you remove your own ego if you're I'd not like in there think, you know you were there how, how 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 can you expect anyone to believe that and take that seriously yeah and i'd like to think as a historian i think part of his disgruntlement was just that it wasn't the truth being told. Yeah. I do think, but, but also, like, you know, I'd be fucking miffed. Yeah. If I, if I, if I become... <laughs> I'd be fucking miffed if I went to prison and no one talk, talked yeah, about it. Yeah, and, and everyone's talking about my mate that got shot, you know. Right. It's like, oh, God. But you also got shot in the face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Went, did all this. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I totally get it, you know. I mean, he's a dude, so it's just like... What an incredible story! And are we? Have we? We're not at the end of this yet. We're in like hour four, so where I don't, and I don't even right, really so feel the need to like spur this on because I almost want this to be the or the audio document of this. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, well, right well, we're almost at the end of my detailed understanding of what happens, right? So, and that's partly I'm less interested about what happens after. 1941 
partly because someone's written a book about him after that period in German, and that's more in, about his role in the socio-political history of East Germany, mostly as an academic, but also that also his role as a he had quite an important role in exile. So he was one of a number of Germans in in America, particularly New York, that was found sought exile and were trying to determine what should happen to Germany if if once not if once Hitler was defeated. And they were having learned their experience with the First World War, they were very say act proactive about this shouldn't be about blaming the German people. This is a, this is an individual's crimes. You shouldn't be blaming the nation for what he has done. Right. Yeah, people got sucked along with it, and which is a gross oversimplification of of what happened. But it, the thrust of it was that after First World War, Germ- the whole of Germany was punished for the actions of a few. Right. And that ended up causing the mess we got into World War II. So he was part of a vocal group that, irrespective of their current ideological beliefs, i.e. communist, were were very keen to ensure that the same problems didn't happen again. But after that point, and he wrote wrote a book, he wrote a book in America, in English, Lessons of Germany, which was written in, I can't remember what year. It was while World War II was still happening. Right. Talking about how the lessons of history, what we can learn about the history of Germany, but also how we should treat it going forwards and involve the German people in that conversation. So very forward thinking. And he and he was surrounded by very famous German intellectuals, like the most famous of which probably Bertolt Brecht, who's a, a famous playwright right. that was in exile. What I've missed out on is what happens between Spain. Because all I'm saying is that after this period of time, although it's interesting, it's less interesting to me because it's less so about the family story because at this point they, they get separated. Right. And because of the, the, the Iron Curtain, actually, they see very little of each other for the rest of their lives. Right. Tragically. But the, I think also it becomes much more... It becomes less about my, my personal history or personal interest in European history he's at the forefront of for a period of time. Yeah. East German history I'm less interested in, you know, that post-war, Cold War era. Mm. And also because he plays much less of a part of it. He, he, he sort of essentially goes into retirement as soon as he goes back to Germany. He teaches, but that's essentially retirement for him. I do, I do, I, I do love the way this is, this is ended mm. in a way because... I've missed that he, one a bit, may I? Go for it. So what we haven't discussed is what happens after Spain. So right. the bottom line is the, the, the Franco and the the, royal, the nationalist, well, the Robert, yeah, nationalist sort of forces, with the help of Mussolini and Hitler, win. Right. 1938, I think. So our Albert has to go back to France, where he is promptly arrested. Right. And sent to a concentration camp. It's not the concentration camps we understand at this stage. It's very much like just an imprisonment camp. But and there are certain degrees of freedom afforded to them. But essentially, it's called the concentration camp because he, again, like I've said before, he is being imprisoned for his beliefs. There is no crime being committed except for a crime of believing in something other than what the state want. And and, and this is by this point, there is sort of concessions being made in France towards the Germans. So he's imprisoned. And ultimately, the next two years are him being moved around concentration camps around France. Right. And also his wife and second daughter are also imprisoned. 
Right. So they are moving around, but in different camps. So they're trying to write to each other and contact with each other for a year and a half, two years, without seeing each other. And right. then they eventually find each other. She, in Marseille, Albert's in a camp called Camp Les Milles, which is tragically becomes one of the sort of gateway camps to then send people off to like Dachau and Auschwitz later right. in the... In, in, not ju- not just Jews, but political prisoners as well, particularly right. enemies of the state and, and such. And they somehow managed to secure a visa to get out. Now, because of Albert's writing, he has connections internationally. And then someone from New York basically writes him a letter of recommendation to allow him to leave France. Because you, you were allowed to leave a concentration camp, but only if you had guaranteed onward travel. Right. And at this moment, they're not, they're stateless. The, the right. Germans had annulled their nationality. Uh-huh. So they are, they, they, ha, they, they are stateless. So they are, they are international refugees. So, but through the League of Writers or some, so basically a left-wing writers guild in America, they managed to secure on the travel to Mexico. Right. So they secure these visas. They get travel on the SS Wyoming out of Marseille, which stops at Casablanca and Albert's arrested again in, in, in Casablanca. So they spend, and then spends three months in different camps the whole time Emma and Helga are trying to speak to various embassies to try and get him out of prison or right. out of camps in, 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 in Africa. And eventually they get, and it, this, is like, this is like the film, they get one of the last boats out of, they get him a visa onto Mexico, one of the last boats out of Casablanca to New York. Well, with an aim to get, so they've got, they've got visas to travel to Mexico, but they have to go via New York because of, you know, it's a long way to Mexico. Right. <laughs> uh, so they go over on the SS Serpa Pinto, a Portuguese liner. Used right. to be a Royal Mail frigate, bizarrely. So, right. Done my digging. So, <laughs> yeah, and then they get to Ellis Island, and because they're sort of stateless, they are, they have to go into sort of, quarant- not quarantine, but like, you know, like, like, like a refugee camp, basically. Right. They, they're basically sort of temporarily... They have to go prison. somewhere where they where the authorities know they're not going elsewhere. Yeah, they basically just need to do checks. But Keep it, an eye it, on it, you. A few months. But but unfortunately, by this time, America started to get involved, because this is like 1941, so the, war, the World War II's been kicking off now. What, America's always said it won't get involved, but it concedes to get involved in the Atlantic conflict. So basically, the battle between British and German fleets in right. control of the Atlantic Channel. Right. Because there's like, it's not just about military, it's about the control of movement. Like, So, for example, Britain was having lots of resources shipped back from the Caribbean and and, and likewise Spain and Portugal and, and, and Southern America and stuff. So, so America got involved and, and with that decision, onward travel from America to Mexico was stopped. So their visa had expired. Or right. It was annulled. So they had to basically, they became refugee, illegal refugees, not only, well, they were allowed into, but they weren't allowed out of New York. So they, they basically took up, set up a shop in New York. Is that what an illegal alien is? Well, I suppose an illegal alien is someone that doesn't have a right to remain. Right, And, uh, and okay. I think, the, but war, obviously this is a war, so it's a very, you know, I think definitely they didn't have the right to remain, but they, they weren't allowed to leave the country to go elsewhere. So right. <laughs> they were kind of a bit stuck. So yeah. they ended up in the Bronx in, in New York and he got a job as a watchmaker. Right. For some years. And your phone is going off. My phone. I'll just suppress that. Yeah, we've really been going. So he's a watch 
As a watchmaker. So he becomes a watchmaker in in New York, the Bronx, for how long are they there for? Five years. In the interim, their second daughter, Helga, meets a guy over there, Polish guy, and then ends up married. So when when they secure safe passage back to once the war's over, they secure safe passage back to Germany. That's Albert and Emma. Helga decides to stay. So she meets this guy, stays, moves to Detroit. Grows a, fam- grows a family, raises a family <laughs> in Detroit. Yeah. So, and I, I always think this is quite tragic because of then he's stuck behind the Iron Curtain when he goes back to Germany, being part of the communist state. So he ends up in, in East Germany, uh, initially in Leipzig and then in Berlin. And both his daughters are the other side of the wall. So, you know, like going back to what we were saying earlier, everything he fought for was for them. And then actually when he, he didn't get it, but when he survived the conflict and the turmoil... You know, there was a big literal and metaphorical barrier between them. Mm. Um, and it's very difficult. You know, it's very difficult to tran- transfer between those two. Right. And so they would have seen each other, but not nearly as regularly as I'm sure they would have liked. And that is where he lives out the rest of his days as a historian in the, do you see, not in the right state. No. He, he was a professor at Leipzig and then became like a curator or director of the historical the Historisch Museum in Berlin. Berlin, right. Where he then, he then, which, what year is, where do we end up now? We end up... Well, in... I don't, like I said, I'm not so familiar with his history once he ends up back in Germany. I mean, there's some stuff in the archives and I haven't really talked about the archives, like the, and I don't want to go off on a tangent now because it's... <laughs> It's quarter to 11. Like the, when I first went to the archives, I said, I want to see the Albert Schreiner files. Right. And they said, which ones? And, and I you said, went, all, all of them. <laughs> and they said, it's not possible. There's 155 files. Right. So they had so much information. So, and, and so like, this, partly my interest is born of what I was able to access in the finite time I was there looking right. at the archives. So do you need to go back again and read the rest? I, I definitely could do with going back, but I've also got to put limits on what I'm doing. And this is right. why I've drawn a line under 1941, because it's interesting, but it becomes less of a family story and less of a story that has a relevance for a broader political struggle. And then it becomes more of a his career trajectory. Yeah. And I, although that's interesting, I, I'm personally less interested in that. Right. I think that's fascinating to me because you've done so much. It almost feels like you've just got to that 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 very last bit, and you've gone. Yeah, I've got what I need now. Well, I think I also just got to put a cap on it. You know, it's like like so with the comic. My original idea was in six months I'll have a comic book about his life. Yeah, and then two years later I'm still scratching the iceberg. Yeah, you know, scratching the scratching the iceberg. You know what I mean? The tip, like, of, the the tip of the iceberg. So you so you need to say, look, for this project and for the people who have invested via Kickstarter to see a result from this, you need to to do a little bit of. of I need to put limits on it, and I need yeah. to break it up into smaller chunks. So yeah. with the Kickstarter, I am I will be at some point in the near or not near future. <laughs> <laughs> I will be delivering a book. Well, you which, wait till this comes out, and, and all of a sudden, there's a, a, a worldwide some mysterious in, rich benefactor. Yeah, <laughs> there's a worldwide interest in this character Albert, and uh, you know, I mean, and like you said, like so, writing it, like so, because obviously, I'm writing for comic, which is a different medium to just historical writing. Yeah, it's a very cinematic 
form of writing. Yes. Well, storyboards. So you have to visualise it. And, yeah. But then, I, but then, I, so I'm thinking about it being a film, but then also recognising that obviously I can't. There's there's finite amounts I can capture in in static images. Yeah. So yeah, there is there's lot there's lots to do here, and I and I do think you know I don't I do think it's a story that has relevance and interest of more than just the family. Yeah. But it's a story that you know like I I I know I've recognised I need to invest time in trying to pick apart. Yeah. Because there's no point in rushing it because there's too much to learn, and I'm still sort of on the you know I've, there's still so much more I could find out. Yeah. But particularly his time in Spain and, and Paris, you know, I've only really got little bits here and there on those. And what is so amazing is that, yeah, he does get to, he's after all of this, all the, all the metaphorical bullets he's dodged, all the literal bullets he's dodged. He lives out the rest. He basically rides off into the sunset a little bit. Yeah. He, he wins. He doesn't get, slain he isn't he doesn't become a villain you know that li- be a like, hero you know, live long enough to say uh, what's that be uh, you could be a villain uh, no no shit what is it uh, be a hero but live long enough to see yourself become the villain right yeah. none of that shit happens to him but i think his ideals change as well like so you know by the point by the time he gets to the end of the second world war or even like halfway through the second world war his goal is survival you know or up until up until the mid twenties, maybe even nineteen thirty-three, his goal is changing the world. Yeah, and then it just changes. It, it suddenly becomes about survival, and mm. then there's a slight distraction with Spain, where he sees an opportunity to try and, you know, go back to the glory days, but it doesn't quite work. Mm. But then it all becomes about survival. So yeah, I think you're right. There's a degree of once once he sort of gets back into Germany. You know, he's not at peace because I think he's still like very dissatisfied with the, some of the outcomes. But he recognizes now that his time for fighting has passed. Yeah, and he couldn't have done a better crack at it. Well, he certainly gave a crack at it. Yeah, <laughs> yes. I mean, at some point he has to go. Well, I I did my best. Mm. Did my best, and I just I just love the imagery of your uncle being there at the end of this. Yeah, as he. He doesn't go out on his own terms, but he's not. He isn't. He's not taken out. Do you know what yeah. I mean? He he lives out the rest of his biological life, mm. and then and then there's some there's something there's something really magical about the fact that you've just popped in on your uncle at this at this point yeah. in time, and, I, like, and he's he's given you the the mission. Do you know what I mean? And I think although you haven't got your book finished yet, we've been here since half six this evening it's now essentially 11 o'clock yeah we've done you've done five hours you've just you've just told his entire life story that you know of yeah to a degree you've done it i know this is just a a, a modest podcast but if not if nothing else how if that book never happens you you, this has happened yeah you've done this record of what's going on in my there's a record here and i feel like weird like i feel like privileged actually to have got to sit here for this long i was not expecting this much detail this Mm. much history and i really feel i feel like emotionally connected to this character now and it's just such an epic story 
is so epic. Oh, God, it's not just me that thinks that. No, it's it's so epic. It's unbelievable. And I just, like, I'm just trying to, like, digest it all. And it's it's a bloody, it's a novel in itself. This could, this man could have been a character in a series of very famous literature, I mm. think. He's absolutely incredible. And the way that you have, like, yes, you've got some books and some some materials here, some photographs, etc. But you have literally just reeled it off for four hours, just off the top of your head. And we've been drinking. <laughs> I mean, it's just been great. I knew it was going to be good, but... This, I just, I just thank you so much. I feel, right. feel really lucky, actually, privileged to have this much of your time and just take, That's fine. take it's, all it's, this It's in. making me realise how much stuff's just been sitting in my head. Like, yeah. you know, without without the outlet, because although I've been working on it, yeah. you know, I, there isn't an end product yet. So it's yeah. just kind of sitting there, festering. Yeah. <laughs> Not festering, you know, like cogitating. I think. Yeah. Well, this is almost like you've just backed it all up. Yeah. I'm sure there's more in there in your head, but you've you've backed it up basically. Yeah, I think a lot of there's been a lot of. I mean, because it's also demonstrated how much research has been involved in it. Yeah, and that's not even getting on to the execution, like just the the, the writing, yeah, the drawing. The so what I want to do is I, I don't know what how this will be presented in its final form. Hmm. God bless Harry for having to edit this. But this oh, is even going to be a homebrew. <laughs> yeah. I don't think he drinks, though, actually. But this will either be a two or three part, I think. Mm. And that when you finally got it done and dusted, let's come back on, maybe not for four hours. Let's come back on and let's catch up. Yeah. Tell me how it went. And we'll, we'll talk about the art and the, how you visualized things. Cool. And, yeah. But it's bloody great. That was great. I don't know. If I've, I've, I feel like we've we finished now. Yeah, yeah. Are you good to you good to finish? Yeah, yeah. I'm just trying well, to think of where my phone's been going as well. Yeah, yeah. Your wife thinks you've been abducted or something. Yeah, I'm just wondering where our uh, where our fade out point will be. But um, that's. Uh... Thank you so much for listening to this big bumper jumbo edition of the giant pod thank you to cole our guest for being so articulate and so well researched and really really bringing albert's life to life for us over that very long podcast what an epic i'll never forget this it was such a good story and at the end of it i kind of felt a bit like oh like emotional for the characters a bit like when when uh when you're watching a film or a tv show and you're so invested in in what's happening in the story that when it ends you feel a bit oh that's the end of it uh, it was it was a strange feeling but a good one nonetheless if you want to keep up with what's happening with the project finding albert we will leave the relative links in the show notes description uh please like subscribe and review this podcast please tell one friend who you think would like this, that would really help us out. Please follow us on Instagram uh, and Twitter. It is at the Giant Pod. You can follow my personal Instagram at, at Andy underscore S1S. This podcast was produced by the heroic Harry Williams. We will see you soon in season two of the Giant Pod. Take care of yourselves. Thanks very much.